So I was seven or eight years old and I was flying to see my grandparents in Cleveland. And I was on the plane next to someone who had a critter keeper with a corn snake in it. Welcome to From the Ground Up, where we talk to reptile keepers and breeders about all things cold-blooded. Sit back and have a beer with us. Well, some of you are driving. If you're driving, keep your hands tended to and enjoy the show. Welcome, everyone, back to From the Ground Up podcast. Thank you guys so much for being here. Guess what? I have these sweet new dad hats in. Um, I actually just ordered one as a sample, but I kind of like how it looks. Tell me, guys. Tell me what you guys think. Uh, should I print some more of these? But anyway, we have other stuff available at portcitypythons.com, portcitypet.com. We have isopods available. A lot of cool species. I just put up giant oranges. Uh, which are really, really cool isopods and super active. Uh, the All the colors of the powder oranges, but bigger and take care of a little bit more waste. So uh, powder oranges are usually, if you guys, I get a lot of people who ask me what are kind of the, the go-to isopods for things. And a lot of times it's going to be your dwarf whites for some of your smaller stuff, you know, like, you know, maybe in a crested gecko enclosure, but even then I, I try to put in some bigger stuff, at least right now with my crested, uh, crested geckos just so they can eat them. Um, I actually have the Cuberus Marina in there, but otherwise, uh, dwarf whites are also great because the crested geckos won't eat them, but they'll take care of some waste or they'll eat less of them at least cause they're so small. But, uh, powder orange is really for a lot of the snakes. Even if, uh, you guys can run snake tubs as far as uh, you can run tubs bioactive. So you can put a few powder oranges in there as well as some springtails and have some good bioactive soil. Um, I use actually the the ISO straight that we sell on Port City Pet and then put a leaf litter, a uh, layer of leaf litter over it. And then you can put some springtails and powder oranges in there. The the powder oranges aren't are super hardy as far as temperature and humidity goes. So even if you do spray your snakes down or something that's high humidity, they're good with that. Even if you have something that dries out, um, that may only stay, you know, 40% humidity, they're pretty good with that as well. So that's why it's a good overall, you know, kind of go to especially for the snakes because they're super active and they take care of a lot of waste and they'll take care of sheds even um i i still pull sheds after a while but by the time i pull them they're they're pretty picked apart by the isopods which i think is pretty cool but uh yeah there's also some merch up there and stuff like that i also i have an eastern black king snake still available i have one male i haven't really advertised that up at all but if you guys are interested feel free to reach out to me otherwise i really think that that's it there's really not much else to to talk about in this intro but Thank you guys so much for being there. Oh, thank you, Michael, in the comments. He got some clowns today from eBay. Thank you, first of all, for buying those clowns, and first of and second of all, for coming out and checking out the podcast and checking out the live stream. I appreciate it. Other than that, you may know our guest by many aliases. You may know him as Bob Rock, Bobby Pebbles. You may know him as the Buddy Bear, the right-hand man to Morelia Python Radio, or Rob Stone of High Plains Herb. How are you doing? I'm great, man. Thanks for having me. Finally, put the bullet on this video thing. So we'll see how see how it goes. I tried to convince you to do a slideshow instead of all the pictures that I sent you, but I don't know if we're going to be able to make that work. I mean, I'll show some pictures, but I want to see your beautiful face first. I've been trying to convince Rob to be on here probably for like I probably asked you first maybe two years ago or so, something like that. Certainly, I know I've been listening from the start, so you could ask me. Ask me anything. I, I don't think there's any of yours 
Eric and I were just talking the other day about how there's one particular one that I just haven't had the gut to listen to of his show. So it's kind of like you got to leave the set incomplete, right? You can't think that you've done it all. So there is one. Um, but uh, I think I've heard all yours. That is so, first of all, thank you. And second of all, like, I can't believe you stuck through that, those cringy, like first 50 of them. <laughs> I mean, half the time that that's fun, you know, especially at the, in the moment, you know, it's great. And then looking back on it three years later, it's, it's really fun then <laughs> yeah. you know, the, with the benefit of hindsight, all, all the different things. It, it It's sort of, you know, the reason Owen really doesn't like that initial scrub show is because it's my favorite show. <laughs> there's Dude. no doubt that those there's a, you know, not only correlation, there's causation on that. Well, and I don't have a Rob Stone, at least to go through all my past stuff and pick out audio really? clips of me sounding stupid and, uh, and replaying them, you know, three years later. So <laughs> I'm grateful to be honest. I mean, that one turned into a t-shirt. Right, that I made up for Tim Lane. <laughs> to me, that's you know the Matlock's Python. That's I think what he really doesn't like about that. Yeah, it's rough. Anyway, uh, so it's all good though. It's all love. You know, that's the part that's so impressive with them is just doing it week after week, as you can speak to you know to do it for that time frame, that many episodes, that consistently. And I, I think that speaks to just in terms of keeping animals and being successful, what that really means is being consistent. And so to me, that's just a prototype example of that sort of effectuating that behavior, even when it's hard. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think Eric talks about all the time that that's like the one thing that, that Larry, I think from reptile radio mm -hmm. told him is to be consistent and he did that. And then I heard that from him and now, you know, I try to do that as best as I can. So it's kind of uh I'm just taking after their lead and yeah, man, it's crazy how consistent they've been over time. And hopefully uh, I'll be right there with them too. Yeah, man, for sure. And the funny, I mean, the funniest bit about Larry giving him that advice is that the one, the first time they didn't do it themselves, you know, they, Eric has kind of built it in, in terms of taking what, two weeks off between Christmas and new year's and whatever. But with reptile radio, they didn't even, they didn't do that the first two or three years and maybe the way it had, uh wow the days fell right it, it didn't wind up really conflicting so it was all good and then at some point there was a conflict and they said oh well we'll we'll be back in two weeks but it wasn't their regular plan to do that and then you know a week became two weeks became a month and then after that it was you know very inconsistent there were there were definitely more shows after that but it, it wasn't the same and then ck did some and stuff and those those were all good but yeah, I mean, it really proved the point that it's like the first first week that they didn't do it, then it went off schedule and became many weeks. Yeah, I've I've felt that myself. Say if like if we didn't have someone someone booked, and I knew that if I took that week off, I would right. <laughs> you know like it would get <laughs> a little bit too comfortable. I may slack on the next week, and it just yeah build upon itself. But I thought. Totally, it, man. It's, it's funny because, you know, I've been to Tinley with you. We've hung out quite a bit, but I have no idea how you first got interested in reptiles. I mean, how did this all come to be? Right. Yeah. I, 
I'm not totally sure, but I can kind of walk through the the highlights that definitely happened. And then, you know, maybe there's some narrative to that. But uh, when I was a little kid, I lived well all over the place, but sort of this first uh, reptile related memory was being in Southern California. There's a pet store called the Pet Barn that I guess talking to Stan Grumbeck, who was distributing dog foods, had still exists. I have my membership card over in the other room. I found it over the summer, something like that. And um, my old man was not a reptile person at all, but he liked animals. So we would go every week or every other week when I'm from five or six years old to this, you know, pet store shaped like a giant barn that, as I say, evidently is still there. And just checking out all the stuff. He loved rats, you know, rat pets. So we had rats as pets. We would as a kid, you know, at elementary school, take home all the things over Thanksgiving break, Easter, or, you know, whatever break, summer break, um, you know, for to, to more and less success, depending on what it was. Hamsters tended to not go well. I, I think a couple of those might have met their maker, you know, associated with him inadvertently throwing them into the wall or whatever when they bit him. Hamsters. So. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and certainly there was, there was a bird incident an unintentional bird incident, but, uh, in Southern, in the Southern California sun, it was just making too much noise one weekend, um, one weekend morning and he'd put it out there to try and get some sleep and forgot about it in the sealed car. And well, that, that was the end of that story. We had to quote, give away the bird and go, oh, can I see it one last time? No, you certainly cannot. <laughs> so, so yeah, so that, there was that from, from real little. And then I moved to Hungary um, when I was seven, something like six or seven and well, yeah. So I'd moved to Hungary and I think this precedes either way. So moved to Hungary, uh, kept some small red-eared slider turtles there cause they didn't have the four inch rule. So you could get the dime store turtles that you but hadn't been able to get here since the mid seventies or whatever. Uh, so I had a whole, gang you know a half dozen of those in a tank and uh when we had moved back i had left them with someone else who worked for the the newspaper that my my folks had owned and um so that was i think my first reptile pet um around that same time i had gone with a friend of mine to italy he had uh his father was actually an immigrant from italy who still whose family still lived in bari and so one summer I went with him for the four or five weeks that they had gone, that they would go over every summer and around the house, villa, whatever situation uh, outside of Bari, there were all these wall lizards. And so we would capture them, you know, try catching them and all this stuff and keep them for a day and then let them out and all this stuff. Uh, I don't think we inadvertently cooked any of them. That was mostly just a very short term, but kind of getting into the spirit of catching lizards in Italy. Um, so I remember that. And then uh, trying to think what would have been, would have been next was probably Sean, who you, you know, have some contact with at Sean of EMS. I bought a uh, leopard gecko from him at the first show that I went to here in Colorado. Um, he used to have all, a whole variety of things. My old man wasn't going for a snake, so there was no corn snake in the offing for me. Uh, but the leopard gecko for 15 bucks, we went in on and I had that, I had that for years. I actually kept it in this, uh, problematic, uh, 
I don't know if you remember the in the back of the reptiles magazines around the mid to late nineties, they would have sort of this fixture that you would be sort of the land segment of a half water, half land situation. Um, but it, it wasn't the one that divided the tank in half. It was something that sort of this thing coming out of the water. So I kept it in there despite being a desert species or whatever. It did awesome despite being on an island surrounded by water uh, <laughs> up until the point that I, I had caught a little uh, bluegill or sunfish locally and put it in there along with a crawdad. So it was a, a big, big aquarium, but I mean, north of north, of, it was probably 29, I think with this. So it's half water and it's got this little fixture in there and um, of a leopard gecko, a bluegill and a crawfish. Um, which was all fine and well until one day the leopard gecko left its tail hanging in the water and it got uh, removed by the, the bluegill. And then they wound up getting separated. So, yeah, so that that's far from ideal, but speaks to how resilient all those things are is because they all lived then separately um, for several years. That's a hilarious years. combination yeah. of animals. It really is. It was pretty fantastic. And the, the interesting bit was that mu the tail must have been removed so problematically that despite being a leopard gecko where they grow back, it never grew back. Whoa. And like, if you guys it, it have was... ever seen, like if anyone's ever gone fishing and those blue, they'll eat anything. Yeah. They're savage. And it got a tail. And, but I mean, that leopard gecko was the first thing that then several years down the line that I actually produced from. So, I mean, she lived an extra at least eight or nine years out of that, producing eggs consistently wow. and doing great. And how old but were yeah. you at this time? Um, probably from 10, something like that, 10 or 11. Um, yeah, so as I say, not ideal is sort of this, this – um, circumstances that you have and then you make a mistake where you say oh i caught this fish you know where, where could i keep this fish and then <laughs> somehow that's that's how it ends up um i did also get a pet store boa constrictor my mother would go in for the the reptile stuff um or the the snake stuff i should say but it was the mall pet store the imported baby colombian boa that is looks fine superficially but I mean, real, it's also interesting with the knowledge that you have retroactively that it's like this thing had been born within 10, 10 days to two weeks before I had gotten it. Maybe they had fed it once. It had been alive long enough to get infested with mites. Um, and certainly keeping it a baby bow, a newborn baby bow and a 20 gallon long with a heat rock um, on AstroTurf. None of these things. Right? Oh, yeah. Right. Um, so it was all the, and being in, uh, you know, in a dry climate and then having, uh, a screen top on a 20 gallon long for a newborn boa, the whole, the whole thing was a disaster. So it didn't go, did not go well. Um, but didn't, didn't dissuade me and it's not what I would do now. I'm trying to think whether I, I suppose I have had a couple boas, at least, uh, well, a couple boa constrictors for short periods of time. Um, in terms of stuff, I think my buddy Tom, who works at the Denver Zoo, had got somebody brought in some baby boas, um, or medium, maybe half size boas, something like that. 
But for the most part, I don't think I've had boa constrictor. I, that might be the only kind of the only one that jumps to mind for sure. Uh, uh, my, I know I my sold buddy James, James Lewis some. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know if I you saw James him in the Lewis chat. Some. He said he bought a pair of adult Colombians in like 2005 or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking. So other than those, there and a guy I worked with at Pro Exotics, Ollie, um, liked boas and had some, and I think. Maybe the ones that James got were ones from Ollie, uh, and I don't I don't know what they, you know what the what the story was, but uh, I think that's the ones that James got. That's um, wild. And what really got you first interested in breeding them? Because I know at that time, I mean, there were people keeping them, and it was nice to see you know animals when you went to the show and stuff. But not many people thought about breeding reptiles at that point. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was it was kind of perfect timing in the sense of Reptiles Magazine came out, and I think the first issue was 93 or 94, something like that. Vivarium had been out since 88 or 89, although admittedly, right, when you're an initial keeper and those, both things existed simultaneously, and that was back in the days when Reptiles Magazine came out every month, and I think they were less sort of less pet focused, but that actually had, when they were both sort of in their peak, they reptiles had, had more of an appeal. And then there was reptile and amphibian hobbyist, which was a small one fauna, which was a, a really nice printed publication that was actually put out, uh, put out by a guy who, who I've subsequently met. He was the publisher of the first four issues or whatever. Uh, it was a great guy, um, Facebook, right. The great uniter. Um, all these years later, but I did start by reading the reptiles annual magazine. And then the reptile reptiles annual turned into reptiles magazine, turns into reptile and amphibian uh, hobbyist, finding back issues of that, that the pet shop would have and that sort of thing. And then Vivarium magazine. But as I say, um, Vivarium actually had more of an appreciation for it now than I did at the time. I remember in the late, 90s early 2000s right when vivarium was folded into reptiles magazine thinking oh maybe this is a good thing and i would never say that now you know uh, comparatively of the two i strongly prefer the vivarium magazine i have the full set and and all that so it's clearly something that i value but anyway i think that was a, a really good time to get into it because the internet existed there there are people that i i could go I remember going on to kingsnake.com in 1997 and 1998 when it had first come out. So Does that was kind of same? right when I had, it did. Yeah. I know everyone, <laughs> you know, I suppose if you came to it much later, then, you know, that's funnier than it is. If you having been there from 97 or 98, I just have the same, you know, comfort that uh, Jeff Berenger has with it in the terms of saying, well, this is what it used to look like. I saw it when it first came out and, I don't mind that it looks the same now, whereas it's probably very dated. If if that's not your exposure to it, it's it's. Imagine kids who didn't grow up like I grew up at least in the forums and doing that. But now we have we have people who are old enough to buy reptiles on their own that have never experienced that. So that may be yeah. their first time on a forum in general. <laughs> sure. They're just yeah. like what? To me, the classified thing is is certainly the most appealing bit of it and the, the part that in a certain way feels least dated because it just sort of it meets the functionality. And I I know besides going to mobile versions and stuff, at this point, it's sort of 
is the archetype of what we still do, right? In terms of all, all these things sort of still have that outline. I know Morph Market is a little bit more rectangular boxes instead, right? You know, it's working more vertically. You know, you get these columns vertically instead of just going line by line uh, horizontally. But as I say, if you're using it for that, I don't mind it. And there's, it is the forums on Kink Snake that are uh, really feel the age. <laughs> Quite different. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I haven't checked that out in a while. But um, I mean, what other things? What other things were you on back then? I mean, there had to have been other forums that you were interested in because I know that. I mean, it got very niche as far as that goes. Yeah, I mean, I none really jumped to mind beyond Morelia Pythons. I know. So maybe when we're talking two thousand three, two thousand four, something like that, going on Morelia Pythons. Actually, the stuff. The ones that stick out in my memory were the um, Australian ones. So there was an Australian reptile finder one. Uh, I think that's what I think that reptile trader maybe. Um, so I remember going on there, seeing albino olive pythons, and seeing you know all this great stuff. And as people say, and I suppose again, this just sort of speaks to the time frame and this sort of thing of saying, oh, well, I never thought we thought we would see those, right? Um, let alone roughies and that sort of stuff. Yeah, Although I did cool. see the, you know, roughies back in 04, 05 up at Terry Phillips place. We'd gone up to, I'd gone with Tom, you know, from the zoo to reptile gardens to do some venomous handling training stuff. And that was when he, that was before he had produced them, but he had a very, uh, a couple of very big ones. Um, or at least, you know, that's how, sort of how they stuck out. And this was, to such a preceded them being here to such an extent that even a picture, you know, at the back of reptile gardens holding on to one of these things uh, was a pretty sweet post that everyone was pretty jealous of. No, I couldn't even imagine. I mean, just in my time in the last, you know, seven years or so, I mean, it's been a rare snake to the point where people, if you had one and you posted a picture up, people would go crazy about it. So I couldn't even imagine when, there's probably two in the whole country. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, well, I, I remember telling him, you know, this, that, uh, you know, we had talked about it at the time and my instant reaction was, Oh, okay. So it looks like a Western stem on sort of a chondro carpet body within the, you know, keeled scales of a lot of North American, you know, a garter snake or a rattlesnake, something like that. And, um, that was, you know, my reaction as well. It's this weird oversized Western Simpsons python, but uh, very beautiful, very cool. And certainly, I guess the other bit of that, right, all through that time watching the um, Marco Shea content, Steve Irwin content. Um, and I think that's part of the drive to go to Australia, right? I love all reptiles. I think about reptiles constantly. And, um, I truly love Western terrestrial garter snakes that we have, you know, here, they're one of my favorite snakes. There was an albino when I was in elementary, elementary into middle school. Um, there's a spot, a theoretical spot, right? Where there's a T positive albino population that crops up every now and again. I'm not sure whether that within that subspecies, whether there's a non Colorado variant that'll put that morph out there. I know people have had that, uh, morph and certainly that's one that could be um, given away um, based on the the laws of the state. You could give you could give it away, and 
someone brought it into the school and I wound up getting that one. But it, I mean, as a baby garter snake, ultimately, I think I kept it for 18 months or two years. And then um, ultimately that snake died. Unfortunately, it was not the only, as I say, it was not the only one. I know Scott Felzer had some, I'm not sure whether those were from the same spot, so to speak, but uh, yeah, someone just brought it into school. They found it in the window well or in their basement. Wow. Uh, cool little snake. And, you know, certainly that was, I guess, so this, this brings up in my mind another exposure when I was uh, 10 or so and into reptile, well, going back even further, and this, this will sound bananas to nowadays, but uh, I remember being on a plane by myself. So I was seven or eight years old and I was flying to see my grandparents in Cleveland and I was on the plane next to someone who had a critter keeper with a corn snake in it. <laughs> so I spend the whole flight, you know, I don't even remember where I was going, you know, what leg it was or where I was coming from or whatever at that, I guess, California at that point. Um, but the notion that you would spend a flight from California to Cleveland sitting next to somebody who's got a corn snake and a critter keeper, <laughs> it's sort of bizarre at this point, but it was, I think that was, that was a big hook. Um, and then my, uh, my, one of my mother's high school friends who was a special education teacher in Cleveland had a big boa in her classroom. Um, and so I, somewhere there is a picture of me holding this quite large, you know, a boa eating rabbits as a, you know, seven or eight year old kid and it's draped around the neck, sort of the classic throttling the snake sort of picture, uh, as it's around your neck. Um, so that was some exposure. And then as I was going to go, going to go into in Belgium when I, I don't know. So when I lived in Hungary, my best friend was from Belgium. He had come, I went to the American school, so they spoke English and my, uh, my best friend had moved from Belgium and didn't speak any English. And he and I had hit it off despite the, well, him not speaking English at all. Um, and subsequently I moved back to the States and he moved back to Belgium and then maybe a year was missed or whatever, but every alternate summer, either he would come to the States or I would go to Belgium. And then at some point, his old man, we wound up going back to Hungary just on a, va a vacation from the vacation, right? So to speak. And his old man knew a commercial reptile breeder who lived outside of Budapest, Hungary. So we went to his place. And at this point, I'm probably... 14 15 something like that and he had i mean all sorts of crazy stuff up to and including all sorts of lapids and things and uh i remember so it's, he must have thinking about it now i mean he easily must have had 300 breeder snakes easily of all manner and variety just at and his this guy was actually outbuilding. breeding he wasn't just importing and oh yeah no i mean he's a lit legit dude presumably you know if if he's still around on the earth he's the sort of person like you and like me who would he certainly has reptiles he might not have 300 at this point but he he would certainly have reptiles so i'm sure he's i'm sure he's still around unfortunately i don't remember uh you know his name or um any sort of identifying information beyond beyond that paltry amount but um i remember asking and my buddy was terrified that i was going to ask him for a snake um but i just asked him for the shed of one of the lapids that he had and he was happy to you know and as he's pulling 
pulling the tubs open. And so I brought that back, you know, um, and that was just so awesome. So cool. Right. Um, shortly thereafter, Pro Exotics had um, opened in Boulder, but it was in a commercial, uh, like a warehouse type space where it wasn't open to the public. But I was uh, it was local to me when they opened the retail shop so that you could come check it out and do all these things. And so I was there the day that it opened all the way through the time that it would had closed. I was there every week. Um, at a point there, I did um, try and put my name in when I was 15, 15 and a half to work there. Um, Robin's mother um, was the manager of the shop and she and I didn't hit it off. Um, and so I didn't, which then <laughs> did lead to a humorous incident wherein, um, I called and complained about his mother to him, but this to, I mean, give me a, an ounce of credit in the sense that he, he didn't fight it. He didn't, uh, didn't disagree. And I still came on board probably 18 months later. So, um, I couldn't see you having trouble with anyone. I couldn't see I know, you right? like, having a conflict. I don't have opinions about anything and I don't, you know, run my, run my mouth at all or, or not, whatever. Um, but, uh, yeah, so my, that, that was good. And I wound up working there when I was in high school for a couple of years. And then, uh, I worked there after. So then I went to uh, school in at Tulane for a year and then I came back to Colorado state and kind of over overlapping that time, my buddy Tom from the Denver zoo and I, uh, started the company high plains herb so together then we kept when i had moved i took my stuff to his place and that was sort of the foundation point of the company he and i then bought some stuff together and then when i was at csu i would stay two or three nights a week at his house which was about an hour's drive away um taking care of animals and um I mean, it was great, man. We got between all those things, all those experiences, trying most everything, you know, within the realm of legitimate to keep, you know, in the state and stuff. Um, so that between, well, I guess too, when I was in high school, I, so I volunteered at the Denver Zoo. And so that he and I became very tight out of that. And that sort of preceded what I was speaking about there. And what did you do just to bring it back a little bit? What did you do at Pro Exotics? So the first time that I was there, um, I helped with, um, I'm trying to think. So the first time it was the Gila monsters and beaded lizards, um, which was a lot of those animals, sort of the cool room, which entailed, entailed those. There were some pyros in there. There were mandarins. There were cocci. Um, there was, the bolins were in there in the, you know, crazy stacked cages that everyone talks about. So I think those, yeah, the, those were the principal focus. And so that, that was in commercial space again, that vented to the outside. So we could suck in 40 degree air. Um, but yeah, so Gila's beaded Bolins, um, and then sort of helping out, you know, as necessary on, on other things. It wasn't, it wasn't super tight. I would help Jimmy feed all the monitors uh, do all that stuff, which was very cool. It gave me exposure to Merton's monitors, 
now one of my two favorite monitors. Um, you know, based on that, based on that exposure, they're not easy to keep in a house setup because they do want water, but um, meaning a big water feature fixture. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was kind of the first time. Then the second time, uh, I took care of all the Asian rat snakes and uh, did all the rodents uh, there, and again helping with Gila's beaded's some ball python stuff there was you know some some percentage of them were mine to quote mine to take care of um but yeah i mean my my focus was the rodents and the, the asian rat snakes and i guess the other bit too is around 2003 um tom and i bought all of the rhino rat snakes from pro exotics um they were having trouble getting blisters on them which i have some thoughts on at this point but they wound up having to euthanize quite a few and then i tom and i together bought all of the rest which i think was about five pair of uh, at least juveniles including some adults and maybe some extra babies and stuff um but so yeah that was that was my start to those and again i you know seen them at the shop and things and those had been unavailable to me certainly i didn't have an extra many thousands of dollars to get into them or whatever um but tom and i made that work we took i think we wound up selling a pair or two at daytona that year um and um that w allowed us to pay for the pay for the project by selling one or two pair um and then we've kept them um you know, collectively, certainly I've kept and produced them. I think every year since 2000, I think I got them in 2000. It's tough to say. I don't remember whether I produced them in 2003 or not, but uh, if not since 2004, and they're the only species that I've had consistently um, that entire time. I've always had at least um, at least a handful since then. What were you, what were they going for when you first started breeding them? So that's the interesting bit is that they've actually stayed remarkably consistent. I don't remember what, well, I think we paid, I think we paid about a thousand dollars a pair for all of them. So whatever that total wound up being five pair plus whatever else. Um, and then basically the entirety of the time that I've produced them, They've sold for seven hundred and fifty bucks a pair, which is pretty weird when you can compare it to almost anything else. They've been remarkably a consistent price the entirety of the time that I've had them. But also, who besides you has bred them every year since two thousand three? In the United States, I'm not aware of anyone. Right. So as I was saying, I don't think the supply is getting out of control. I mean, it's mostly you. Yeah. <laughs> Hundred percent, and especially or there are a couple quirks to them, so that I think people have been, generally speaking, more successful now than they were previously. And until, really, until two thousand ten, Tom and I got some wild caught ones that Cameron brought in, uh, which was kind of a funny story in itself from China. Excuse me, from China in uh, two thousand five. But other than those, we really didn't see more come in until 2009 or 2010. Um, and even then, very small numbers. We're talking maybe 
six to 10 animals at a time, once or twice a year, something like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, so certainly that that's had an influence, but they are a little bit weird to breed relative to a corn snake. You know, if you just treat them as a corn snake in terms of how you pair them and then saying, Oh, okay. They're the female is developing these follicles and she'll be good to go. Um, if you pull them out at that time, you're probably going to get slugs or nothing. And I think I know going back to 2003 or 2004, Kathy Love had rhinos and didn't have any success. And with the knowledge that I have now, I think, I think that's probably what they were doing is they were treating them like corn snakes. And um, they're in some ways similar. Uh, certainly they're extremely hardy. Uh, they're very calm snakes, but um, I think that if you just treat them that way in terms of trying to breed them, you, you won't have a ton of success. So that first that first group that you got were all those just uh long established captives as far as um i mean yeah, so they, wild caught they had gotten the first ones that cameron brought in from klaus schultz uh back in 90 so they were either 97 or 98 animals it's a i need to to totally nail down the history on this but certainly klaus was one of the first people to produce them i think uh, Nikolai Orlov, Tula, Exoterium. I think they were probably the first to produce them. And I'm not sure whether they sent Klaus some wild animals or or exactly how that is nailed down. I need to, I know Sergei Ryabov, uh, Nikolai Orlov were involved in terms of, from Tula, Russian uh, Academy of Sciences, were involved with going in 94 and 95 doing field expeditions at Tam Dao, Vietnam, which is northwest of Hanoi, that uh, mountainous region there. So they had gone. And as far as I know, the, the captive specimens that came out of those collecting expeditions in 94, 95. Uh, so again, kind of the, the communist connection, right? Presumably it was facilitating that, although there were American academics on those trips, um, uh, kind of facilitated some of that. They're never really a species that's been exported from Vietnam for the pet trade, as far as I'm aware. I'm not aware of any that have actually come out of Vietnam explicitly for that purpose. The Vietnamese ones we see now are descendants of those uh, wild animals that were collected on those scientific expeditions. So the first ones were associated with that, and they came into the U.S. in 98, maybe mid-98, something like that. And Pro Exotics had bought all of them, as far as I, I know, save maybe Fort Worth, Zoo got some, Fort Worth got some, Denver got some, and uh, the rest went to Pro Exotics. So kind of all the private trade ones had gone to them. And it's not, as I say, so it's not totally clear to me whether all of those were the, the stuff from Klaus. Certainly the ones that Pro Exotics had were the Fort Worth ones and Denver ones might have had some influence from other wild-caught ones that had come through Tula. And then Tula would send stuff to Cameron through sort of the, the mid-aughts um, every year. And uh, I got those as well. There were several years where I wound up buying 30 of them or whatever that would come from Tula just to make sure that I could kind of manage what was going on instead of having them go to random jobbers and stuff and then seeing seeing those just get mixed in. It, it to be honest, it was less about controlling a market than it was kind of mixing in different things and maintaining 
the best bloodlines that we possibly, the most genetically diverse bloodlines that we possibly can um, more than anything saying, Hey, let me mix a, a pair from this Tula, you know, maybe they're F2 from wild caught Tula stuff with one of these Klaus things. And then with the Chinese wild caught descendants of the Chinese wild caught stuff that I had, that I had produced. So is there some type of um, desirability between Vietnam or China, like what are the the different localities or what is going on? Which one's more desirable? Sure. I, I think there's traits that we see out of the lines of animals, but I don't think there's an inherent uh, difference in terms of locality stuff. All the wild rhinos that you see tend to have less black and white visible, but I think that's more a product of, so they tend to be more uniformly green snakes. Um, and if anything, they show the sexual dimorph, the color-based sexual dimorphism more than, more than captive stuff does. But, um, they're in terms of the Tamdao to Guangxi, the, the entire range of these snakes is very tight. So there, there's not, and there's, as far as I'm aware, there's not really any genetic, you know, barriers to gene flow that would cause a unique look supposedly. Uh, specimens exist that retain at least one that they saw that was sort of a a larger animal, whether that means, I haven't seen a picture. I I don't have the information beyond saying mention has been made of two, two and a half, three footers that are still gray. Um, But I think it's all referencing probably the same snake and what that actually looked like. I, I don't know. I've never seen a picture. I don't, I can't really speak to it other than saying I know the literature references that is maybe being possible out of hundreds that I've seen. I've never seen, but again, that's, I've reached a point in my life where I'm plenty willing to admit and own and even speak up to things that I don't know. So I can't, certainly there's a reference to it. It's not from nothing, presumably, but what it actually means, I don't know. Yeah. And what was at that time when you were bringing, you know, you were working with these rhino rats and all that, I mean, were you thinking of doing this full time at all? I mean, was that ever a thought? Yeah. I mean, I suppose so. Certainly when there was a year, I think 06 that Tom and I sold quite a few animals. The only, the only bummer of it was that, you know, we paid Cameron almost as much as we had made. So we sold, I don't know almost a hundred thousand dollars worth of reptiles, but we had paid almost that same amount, you know, between, between all these things, a lot of that coming from Cameron, but the cool bit of that was just the exposure to, you know, going out when the crates, you know, the shipments would come in and seeing stuff before anyone in the United States had seen those, save the inspectors or whatever, if they had opened that crate Um, and picking out blood pythons and annulated boas from Quetzal that there was one that must have been a chimera. So this little annulated boa that was half half the the dark phase and half orange phase in a weird mixture pattern, not one of these split head uh, ones that, I mean, that pretty clearly is what it was. It was just a, you know, the opposite of identical twinning, right? Where two snakes become one snake in, turn, in development. Uh, but it was a very very pretty snake that ultimately Jeff Murray wound up with, but I don't think it ever um, wound up producing and being a chimera. Maybe that has something to do, you know, something to do with that, but it was a very stunning, very stunning snake. Um, So getting the opportunity to work with all those different things, baby uh, tannin bar pythons, captive hatch tannin bar pythons, 
what I think based on talking to Daniel Natush now, maybe we're the first captive bred Halmahera pythons. So back in 2000, January or February of 2005, I got two really small uh, Halmahera pythons, a pair that uh, I was obviously super enthused about, but they weren't red. And everyone said, oh, well, they can't be babies, even though they're the size of newborn carpet pythons because they're not red. Well, now Oklahoma City and uh, subsequently Chuck Poland have shown that, well, they're not born red. So I wasn't wrong. They <laughs> they fit on the top of a four-inch, they completely coiled on top of a four-inch terracotta planter base. And I'm like, ah, okay, I don't know how old you're trying, what size you think they're born at, but I'd imagine this is pretty close to it. Um, anyway, so that they were just sold as uh whatever, as they were, I don't think there was really any information tied to it, but in Daniel Natusha's paper where he talks about all the, the stuff going on at the farm and things, he mentions having measured Halmahera python eggs and the timing of that combined with sort of that being a funneling all that stuff to Cameron and the stuff that we've seen. I think those are probably the snakes that hatched that were associated with that. So that was super cool. Uh, and I had those snakes for quite a while, I ultimately sent them to my buddy, Bill Hughes in Tennessee, who then sent them back to me. Um, and I had them for another uh, quite a few years. Ultimately, the female inadvertently killed her, the male, that clutch mate. Um, she bit him in a feed response and I think wound up messing up his internal structure so that when he ultimately ate, it didn't pass right. Um, and then I had a male drown. Uh, drowned himself by pinning himself with his head upside down in a water bowl. And then she caught two really big tumors. So, you know, 13 years later or whatever, they wound up all having passed away. But uh, yeah, super cool animals. Uh, and I'm glad to have tried those things. You know, it's, it's always interesting, right? There's a, a discouragement to trying different things because if you try different things and you find that you don't like them, then you sell them and people, conceive of that as then you're a flipper this sort of thing or you get sort of this reputation and that that's really a bummer because to my mind you should try things and then figure out what you like you, you can't know if you'll like it until you try it simultaneously i understand not trying a dozen things simultaneously and i think the real key and i've been certainly guilty of this myself you know particularly 15 20 years ago is that the initial shine, right, can make you sort of run your mouth about, oh, these are the best, you know, and then you look a little silly when three months later you're talking about <laughs> selling them and stuff. So, you know, maybe try things, but try them in moderation and then be open to the fact that they might, they could be awesome, but maybe just not awesome relative to what you enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Is there ever really though, like a sweet spot for you as far as, I mean, did, does it always come to Asian rat snakes or, I mean, rare pythons? I mean, what is really your, your niche? I don't know. I mean, I think the, where I'm at now, I'm actually pretty content. The, although I did just buy the first, you know, first snakes that I've bought in a year, um, from, uh, Tim Gebhardt, who you probably know, Vivid, um, he had an update to his list and I happened to see it and caught me at the, the right time. So he has those Depi Depi 
that he's got that hypo project associated with those. And when he had first put those out, I had happened to see it because I think he had inadvertently made public sort of his operating page that he didn't intend to make public. And I think that was probably three or four years ago. So I had seen those and those really impressed me. Um, but he didn't have a ton of availability, essentially any availability, and they were quite expensive. So this past weekend, he had updated, sent out his availability update, and I saw those DepBuy, and I said, yeah, those would be cool. I've had Jani, but I've never had DepBuy DepBuy. So uh, I'm I excited to try I did not expect those. you to say Pituofus at all yeah. or anything North American. Yeah, man. So I I like all sorts of things. To, to answer your question more specifically, no, I think there's probably things that I like in basically every group. Some of those I can keep, some of them I can't. Uh, so I, you know, I keep what I can and, and don't uh, keep the other stuff. But I I actually save sort of that purchase. I'm, I'm really content with what I have now, which is a mixture of things, West Indian boas, the Solomon Island tree boas, the rhinos, still you know still doing great with those and um but if you said hey give me a a north american colubrid i sure i have north american colubrids that i really like you know that doesn't i mean heck i it was only maybe two and a half or two and a half years ago um i had moved away from keeping a lot of snakes in racks um i it certainly has a purpose and it's not against uh, against doing that, I still have racks now, but just in terms of, I found, well, I have, I don't know, 120 snakes or something like that. And I really like interacting with 40 of them. Well, despite the fact that those other 80 are important to me in some way, either important to me, important to the, the population of people interested in those or both things, um, they're not, you know, in sort of that top 40. So would it make more sense to get some cages and really be able to enjoy the, enjoy to the fullest, those things that I really like. Um, and so I did, I sold a lot of stuff that were important things to me. Rubber boas. I had a lot of Therai, Therai or a snake that I really like. I had 40 of them, 45 of them, something like that. Alterna snakes that I, that I really like. I had almost as many alternatives as I did there. I, and, um, I would get, you know, Brian box. So pure, uh, locality, either F1 or F in some cases, F2 stuff that are really locality tight. I, and I love locality alterna. The, the Therai were really cool because despite having 40 or 45 of them, I could tell which one each one was cause they all look different. Um, so those, those are great. The those are probably my two favorite uh, two favorites. We'll see how the depi are. Certainly, they're beautiful. I, I do, I think, have a thing for snakes that look like three or four snakes stapled together. <laughs> yeah, it is always nice when the tail looks completely different from the head, looks completely different from the midsection of the of the animal. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, heck, I mean, I, I don't keep any, but I love bull snakes. I love findable snakes. They're uh, one of the first snakes that I would, well, in the, in my area, they're one of the few snakes that you'd see consistently. So I've probably seen not, uh, this, this hits another, you know, jump from soapbox to soapbox. Right. But, uh, I do like finding them in the wild. I think they're all beautiful. Certainly some are, are different, you know, than others, but, uh, 
it's always, it's the bummer of seeing field herpers on Instagram, right? I would say, oh, I've seen, I don't know, two or three dozen or something over my time, which is not that many. And then, but if I were to say that on Instagram, I'd have some 18 year old field herpers say, I found that many yesterday or some bullshit like that. And it's sort of, well, that's fine. You can do what you want, man. Like I have a wife and a daughter and you work and, you know, all these things. And it's like, I can't drive to Baca County at the drop of a hat at this point in my life. Yeah. I mean, how dare you? I mean, you're, you're someone who we, we go to Tinley and we see something on a table and I'm like, what the hell is that? And you're like, yeah, I've, I've had those before type of like, you've kept pretty yeah, I mean, much which, everything, man. Yeah. And, and which again, some of it for a week or two weeks and some of it for I mean, rhinos going, you know, 18 years or whatever. Um, and most stuff somewhere in between, but I think all reptiles are cool. They're, they're not necessarily something that makes sense for me to keep or that I would even enjoy keeping, but that doesn't mean I don't love seeing them. I found my first uh, yellow belly racer, uh, you know, which again was, that, that isn't a hugely common one to find here, but you know, Oh, that's your first one, you know, 15 years in or whatever. Yeah, I guess, but it was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and you've now, I mean, you've gone and you've traveled all over the place as far as herping goes. Well, Australia in particular, but I mean, have you gone anywhere else herping that, that we may not know about? No. Well, so I've been to, uh, to quite a few places. I haven't been to Africa. I've been to Turkey um, that's the, I was just having a conversation yesterday about that. That's the closest that I've been. Um, I've been to Turkey a handful of times, which is, which is great. It's, I maybe wouldn't suggest going now in the same vein as Hungary of like, eh, well, maybe now is not the time to go, but it is a very cool place. The people are great. Um, I've been to Kyrgyzstan, which should have some interest. I think you even get a laugh, you know, the get Dion's rats over there. Um, which are another species that I like that we don't really see. And, and if you're into locality stuff, there's so much cool locality diones that could be done. It doesn't really exist. Uh, it exists more in Europe than it does here. But uh, all of the, to that point, you know, I sent Matt most all my locality diones and color morph diones and that sort of stuff. Um, those are cool. Those so came from you? The ones that Matt has? Yeah. yeah. Most most of that stuff came from me, yeah. Because I've been, like, freaking out about those, especially, like, those really high red ones that he has. Yeah. So are those uh, as might, easy to uh, keep I know as he, they seem to be? Yeah, they're not – well, so the the one sort of weirdness, they're not, they're not big snakes for the most part. There is – and I forget which locality it was. There, there is one that grows bigger. Um, I think it's the – there's a relatively Southern Chinese locality that gets pretty big. Um, and maybe one of the, one of the Russian ones gets big too, but um, for the most part, they're, they're really small snakes. They're cool. I've had, I did not have the locality where this was the case, but there is a locality where the eggs develop so long in the female that they hatch in like 10 days once they're laid. Wow. And that's just, and, but that doesn't typically happen. That's a locality thing. Like what's yeah, the difference specific... between the other animals? I mean, what's the typical uh, period? More typical would be at least a month, something like that. 
but and they're sort of you know how you get windows on hognose eggs they the entire egg sort of looks like that especially on those that hatch in 10 or 12 days or whatever they like the whole egg looks like a window so it's almost like you know when you see boas come out in the embryonic sacs and yeah. it's all it's I mean, not that's quite basically as tight what it is, it, but... a little a little firmer than that but it's obviously yeah to the point you're making it it's probably one of those that's evolutionarily you know closer to the middle than most things are that's wild so and and how do you keep them i mean asian rat snakes obviously everyone thinks cooler um what do you do with those guys yeah i mean they're like corn snakes man like i i didn't worry about those things at all they the only thing is they do have some <laughs> they can occasionally have these really caustic um defecation they're really more of a um, I don't know if urination is right, right in terms in terms of how they do it, but it's sort of they can make it pretty nasty, sort of a la blood python, right? Where not not um, on that same sort of irregular schedule, but in terms of I've seen it before, where it's just like, oh man, this is super caustic, and that would be the stuff where if you have too many snakes and you wind up then oh, or you're out of town or whatever, and so you're a little bit a little bit late on that. Um, you might get some skin stuff out of having left them uh, two or three days exposed to that. So that that's kind of one peculiarity just to be sure that you're keeping them extra clean. Um, but I mean, for the most part, they're pretty standard. I didn't is keep them exceptionally cool. Is that something that goes beyond just, I mean, you, you obviously said it about these, you said about the rhinos, but like some sort of skin issue. Does that happen with a lot of the, the old world rats? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose certainly the porphyracia are like that. You know, they're they're relatively delicate. The interesting bit with rhinos is that their skin is actually really super resistant to sort of everything but the teeth of, uh, you know, their same species. That's the only thing I've really seen cause um, real problems. But, um, yeah, if you keep them too wet, that that's an issue. Um but as I said, I mean, if you take a shed from a rhino and you try and pull it apart, it's actually remarkably difficult. Um, and I, I've seen things in terms of feeding live uh, sort of stuff where you have a rodent bite, literally bite on. And it is um, it, rather than puncturing the skin, it's pulling, pulling away from the body and um, giving sort of this you're seeing the interstitial stuff and you see this rodent really working it and it you're freaking out naturally um and then trying to intervene and, and all this stuff again younger days and mistakes and all this stuff but um it's remarkably resilient skin to everything but a male biting them i've seen females get really torn up in fact in the one of those pictures that you pulled up previously you can see a wound on the female's uh anterior posterior third uh, from the from being paired with a male there's occasionally you'll get males that are just too overly aggressive and i've had it before and that that was actually one the, the clutch wound up being getting good fertility and things but you'll be in a situation where it's like i don't know whether this is enough to get a good clutch from this animal but i just can't leave them paired up anymore because the male is just so aggressive so, so what yeah, is this behavior say, like um do they latch on i mean like we see in some kink snakes or what are they doing yeah, but they're doing that all across their body and, and their teeth, their dentition is such that somehow it's, it's causing 
I've seen it, not not in terms of being. I've seen the aftermath where it looks like literally a you took a razor blade to the other snake to the female. Um, I think some of the growths that people see on these are associated with. They don't. I don't think have the ability to really store fat in the way that we do. So they kind of improperly store it as these sort of, for lack of a better word, pustules or something like that. But think bigger and less more of a cutaneous bump than you would think of like a, a pimple or something like that. And I had one female and this is the female that that very season wound up laying the most eggs I've ever gotten from one 17 eggs in a clutch. Um, that uh, I fed her a lot, a lot of food and coming out of that season, she developed one of these um, sort of subcutaneous bumps maybe four or five inches down from her, uh, the base of her neck. And I was like, Oh, okay. Well, what about this? So I, the first day that I put the mail in there, um, you know, she had it. And the next morning I came down and she had across that spot, what looked like, you know, you'd taken a razor blade to it and the litter of the cage had this weird Brown, dark Brown staining on it. Um, that clearly was, had come out of that. Um, and yeah, I mean, just the notion that, I mean, look, that's what it looked like. It had the teardrop shape. If you took a, a razor blade to, to something. Whoa. Interesting. And so as I say, you... one of those that, that you posted up there where she's on eggs, you can, you can see it on her. Um, there's a, a spot at that point, I think, well, it's not post shed, but it's showing healing and stuff. And now she looks fine. I've never had, never had a problem with it, not healing. Right. Um, but I mean, it's, well, I, the male that I have her paired with now, um, looks relatively similar to her. He's, um, showing blue and things that make them look pretty close. Uh, but I can tell which is which because she has that scar on her back from, from the other male. So I've actually been going through the pictures trying to find that, and I'm not sure if this is it. Yeah, it's this one. Yeah. Yeah, it's that guy right there, that scar. Is that a scar? Yeah, sort of that that bump on the – or that, you know, raised maybe inch or so. Yeah, man. That so is... that, was a, that was, I think, two or three seasons ago. Um but yeah, so that, that, that is fairly common with those. And my advice to people is always sort of the same in the sense of, well, you just need to play it by ear. I do have one other interesting thing to say about that picture. Um, but uh, my advice to people is to play it by ear. And you might reach a point where you say, um, you know, whether this means I don't get eggs from this pair this year or not, I, I just can't leave them together. And that did happen. Um uh, in this instance, I, you know, as soon as we're talking about a wound like that, it's, well, for me, they're coming apart, whether, whether that means I don't produce from them or not. Yeah. And but what I wanted to say, do you notice how the eggs are kind of enveloped or they're stacked in an interesting way? Yes. Yeah. They're like two levels and they're all sort of sit, seated one on top of the other. It gets a little bit, it gets a little sloppy, right? Uh, on the far right when you're looking at the picture, but mm. that's actually characteristic of them to lay sort of eggs so that they're two levels deep stacked perfectly on top of one another. And then they wind up being this sort of packet of eggs. 
and it's even remarked on in the literature and stuff from the very first clutches they were seeing as far from far from unique to her it's it's very uh, commonplace it, it's much more strange it's only when you get maybe over the average clutch size is probably six to eight and it's only when you start getting really over those numbers that uh, you'll see more irregularities i think one of the other egg pictures that you have in the the thread it's it's a little bit looser because i think there was 13 or 14 eggs there yeah and is that some type of i mean do you have any idea where they would lay their eggs in the wild i'm thinking it's probably similar to what you're seeing there where it's in that in that hollow and like this cork rat like yeah. tube and so those are a little bit stacked but because of the the circumstance of the environment they're not they're not super neatly stacked but you can see some of some of the same thing going that's yeah, a very no. blue female so she's a an f well probably an f2 she's uh, a first generation descendant of those original pro exotics animals so she's a, a 2011 she was the last year that i bred the female that then survived until she was 18 or 19 years old um and the uh, her clutch mate original male so she's a a Klaus Vietnamese blue quote blue line. And you can see maybe why I would say that she's quite blue. She is very blue. Yeah, man. That's amazing. And I mean, you can't really go wrong, even if it is green. I mean, shit. Yeah. And they definitely, thing. so there's, there's some, I don't think it's a locality thing. As I say, I think it's related to particular, uh, particular snakes, but, you do have lines that tend to be more blue and then all of the females will go through uh, when they have clutches will go through sort of the hormonal blue thing you see in chondros so that i mean she is has probably she would be blue anyway but then add on four or five clutches or whatever and that makes her particularly so and are these animals i mean can they double clutch no i've never double clutched them and it, part of that is that it takes their process takes much longer, at least the way that I keep them and in my conditions. I know a, a European guy was saying, I was saying, oh, I, you know, on the rhino rat group on Facebook, I posted up saying, oh, I have a couple of females that are developed just now developing follicles and things. And that's sort of normative to my time frame uh, in terms of seeing eggs typically between late May and uh, late May through June, somewhere in that range. Although last year I got three clutches and the entirety, it was a clutch all humorously, I suppose. It wasn't super convenient for me. All of them were when I was at Eric's spot for Carpet Fest. I had three clutches um, from the, th the three that I had paired up and it was one day, the next day, and then two days later. So that I was at Eric's house and my, my wife had to pull all three clutches, much to her chagrin. Yeah, she uh, she comes. But speaking with that? of, it was okay. She made it. She did okay. <laughs> That's but, good. Uh, yeah, it was. It's funny that uh, you know it speaks to the timing of the room, right? And and having animals that are cycling together. That the three clutches that I got were within a four or five day range. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and do you, do you brewmate these, or how exactly does that work? Yeah, so I've tried all the different things that you can do. I, I know at Denver Zoo, they used to keep them in the warm area, so in the temple section in this warm area, and they would produce them without brumating them, which presumably was exposure to, there was temperature fluctuation, but not a super cool uh, 
not hitting a super cool temperature, but also just having, I think there were two pair in that same enclosure, which is interesting because typically males don't do well, but that speaks to having them in a six foot, you know, six foot by four foot sort of cute rectangle or whatever, such that um, the males, I, I guess that was enough space for them to tolerate one another, whereas they wouldn't in a tub for sure. Uh, that you definitely is sort of in the Python, you know, again, sort of how they're somewhat have some Python tendencies. If you put two of them together, you're going to, you're going to notice, <laughs> um, they're going to chase each other around and there's biting and stuff like that as well. Wow. So um, do they, do they but, like straight uh, up combat, like with biting, if you put, if you put two males together? Yeah, I've, I've not yet seen it where you have sort of two males that will, what happens more typically is you have one that clearly it's kind of more clearly established that one would be dominant. So the other is just trying to get away rather than having to really compete. Um, it's more one attacking and chasing the other around is sort of how it, I've seen it presented um, than, than the Python thing. But definitely in terms of if you toss them together and you hear a lot of noise, you that's probably not a great sign. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that you've probably, you've probably covered this extensively in an episode of NPR, I'm sure, as far as getting babies started and everything like that. So I don't want to, I want to refer everyone to to that if they want to listen to, you know, like the. Sure. Yeah. I mean, over 18 years or whatever, my views have changed somewhat. Um, And that's a whole, yeah. Stumbling into another soapbox, man. But just just to 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 round off the point of what you had raised, um, nowadays I keep them basically like diamond pythons in terms of letting them get down to uh, whatever the room goes down to. They're at the the bottom of the room, and maybe the room will get to the low sixties uh, or so. And they don't um, they don't have supplemental belly heat. I'll put a spotlight on them, and I, I run all the lights on a. Um, a cycle throughout the year so that they have eight hours of light in December, January, and then come June, July, they have 13 hours of light. And so they can get access to heat to raise their body temperatures up, but they mostly don't um, during the winter when it's at its coolest. But uh, theoretically they would have access to that. That's what I do now. If you're going to properly brumate them, I would say if you're not giving them the potential to warm up, um, you probably don't want to go much cooler than 50. So if there's not fluctuation to it, if it's just a static sort of 48 or 50, that's probably not great. If it'll, if it will warm up into even the mid fifties or 60, um, maybe not every day, but with some, some level of regularity, um, you can get away with, they'll be active at 38 degrees. Wow. Like they, they'll, you know, poke out and give you a look and stick their tongue out and they look like a, Ganyosoma oxycephalum, where they'll stick their tongue out and then, sorry, this camera thing's throwing me off. So they stick it out and then they sort of wag it up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down so that it's out of their mouth for eight or 10 seconds. And then they pull it back in slowly, which is a behavior you see in um, oxycephalum kind of normatively and Jansenite normatively. But um, it's weird. They don't usually do that, but they will at 38 or 40 degrees. But if you kept them, if you just put them in a wine cooler at that temperature for two months, you're probably going to see neurological problems out of them. I don't think they stay stay consistently that cold where they're from. And then after, 
after that period, I mean, are they spring breeders? Yeah. I mean, so the only difference is just generally speaking, the female, um, they take longer to develop follicles than you see in corn snakes or other kind of standard colubrids. And uh, they'll, the follicles get huge before they're ovulated so that they look gravid and they're, they haven't even ovulated and they look like, man, this thing could lay a week from now. And then they'll do weird things where they'll, in terms of sheds, where they'll shed uh, pre ovulate, they'll have a pre ovulation shed. And then, so you're sitting there waiting on eggs and you've pulled the male, but they haven't even ovulated yet. And if the male wasn't in there recently enough, then they'll wind up, uh, either slugs or nothing. And I, that, that was what I was alluding to with Kathy and stuff. And I think she owns that, you know, in turn, I know from talking to her at the time, she was like, yeah, it's just not, um, in terms of all the stuff she had going on, it didn't make sense to do them. And, and it is a weirdness to them. It's not even not reading the snakes. You're, you're looking at the snakes saying, man, this thing should lay eggs 10 days from now. Um, but in fact, you might, I've had it where they've, you could say that, and then we're talking about two sheds away from actually laying eggs. Wow. So, so. Yeah, yeah, that definitely is very different. And I mean, I know that the, the babies are tricky. And like I said, it's probably been covered before. So please check that out. But can you give us just a quick overview on how to get babies started out of the egg? Yeah, sure. I mean, to me at this point, and this follows... Um, well, so the uh, European keepers, generally speaking, can can be tend to be pedantic and uh, just sort of cultural norms in terms of how you might express yourself or whatever can can make them come off very strongly to sort of American keepers and how we perceive things, especially at in the the context of online where there's no, you're not actually engaging someone in a conversation. Although, as I say, to that point, I've had uh, those interactions where you say, okay, well, you, you would say that to someone's face, you know, <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not just, Oh, you're a keyboard warrior. No, you would say that to someone's face and you're just willing to let it play out. But um, I would say that sort of my own views have shifted in that direction. So that a lot of the, the thought process there is to, um, start stuff more naturally than maybe, you know, we have an obsession with feeding things, domesticated rats or mice, you know? Um, and that's, if it's not eating those things, it must be broken. And that's the, as a, that's where we get into the soapbox conversation, right? Of If we're talking about something where it's a multi-generation captive bred animal and the majority of a given litter or clutch will accept a domesticated rodent, well, then the standard there is, to me is different than something like a Oxybelis or an Ayatula that, you know, eats lizards, right? This a Langaha, right? Where it's like, well, the reason that they don't exist for the most part in herpeticulture is because they're really, that's what they eat in the wild and they're unwilling to take other things or they don't, the physiologically, they're just that <laughs> we can't override, you know, tens of thousands of millennia, hundreds of thousands of millennia, whatever it might be of evolution um, and have them successfully eat rodents and do well on it. Hog knows clearly you can, now, you know, it's pretty clear that they, they might not eat rodents in the wild, but they can 
you know, eat a moderated diet of rodents and do well. They can Langaha, survive eight years not. and yeah, do okay. You know, right. <laughs> Even then it becomes, yeah, to the point that you raise, it's like, well, what is our, what is our definition of long, you know, long-term success? And it probably isn't sufficiently long to actually account for some of this stuff. But, um, you know, working with newborn baby Alterna, it's like different things are differentially suited right to taking rodents or rodent parts and starting that way maybe alterna are easy to feed mouse tails you know hopper mouse tails they, they're the right size to not force but rather because there's a key difference between assist feeding and force feeding something force feeding you know it's it's just going in one way or another assist feeding essentially you trick them into eating it right you start it and then they eat it of their own volition and the, the difference in how something does between those two things is, in my experience, huge, right? If something will, if it's assisted in the sense of you start it and then it will eat it, it will willingly accept it. Those things tend to do okay. Um, and like baby alterna, baby, baby uh, variable king snakes, um, their body form, the, the form of their mouth and neck and all is very well suited to, to doing that. So those, yeah, I'd probably feed them that if, you know, as long as they're willingly assisting, they'll probably do fine, you know, and they'll eventually switch to pinks. And for the most part, I found that to be the case. 95% of baby alternate and Thera, you can, that'll happen. If you start them, if they won't just take a pink, give them tails, give them a handful of tails, and then they probably will take a pink. Um, baby Solomon Island tree boas, it's a bad idea. I So then we get into the spot where I'll just feed them a lizard. Um, rhinos, I used to, mess try tease feeding all of them you know with pink heads and stuff like that and some of them it'll work you know they're, they're some of them are willing to bite and then they'll bite and hold on and if you kind of stay still go catatonic they go catatonic and then kind of wake up with it in their mouth and they eat it but the percentage of them that do that seems to maybe vary by line and clutch and how many generations they are with some of the f1 stuff they just won't even bite for anything or they'll bite and they just will not hold on to it at all. They throw it out of their mouth constantly. And so when you have that, um, if you put in a tadpole or a fish, they'll just eat that. And I've shifted, transitioned in, as a keeper to saying, okay, is it is it about me or is it about the snake? And if you have a snake that's willing to do that and then graduate into eating maybe floated pinks out of that, I will, I've, I take that approach now. It's not good for me or the snakes to be stressing about trying to, to get them to eat something else. I tend to feed them what's available to me, which is, you know, minnows if they won't take pinks. Um, uh, can you explain know, a floating pink real quick? Yeah. So, so sort of the standard approach, you know, you, you toss in a, a, I hatch out rhinos. I'm going to offer them all live pinks. And if they, those that don't take them, I'll probably, try live pinks again. If they don't take those, then I'll put uh, live fish in the water bowl. Typically, I mean, maybe you could get super small goldfish, but more commonly it's minnows, rosy reds. I suppose they're, and again, that's an availability thing. If you breed guppies, great. If you breed Dendrobates erratus and don't mind feeding them tadpoles, you know, those, those aren't going to have any uh, toxins in them, obviously, you know, that's an accumulative thing associated with being in the wild and stuff. So you could feed them those if you wanted to, um, that, that would, I think make a ton of sense. That'd be perfect. But 
unless you're producing them for yourself and, and sort of where you're at, it would make sense to potentially feed out a 20 or $30 frog. If you let it grow up, you know, that, then that's, that's, that's on you. You know, if you're happy to do that, I think that would make a ton of sense. Um, but I know historically people talk about zoonotic disease transfer eh, relevant to today. Um, but, uh, and I don't even know if we should go into that, but, um, I think a lot of the talk about, oh, fish are super dirty and all this stuff. Oh, you're just getting fish from PetSmart. Some of the time, I think we as reptile people wind up making excuses that sound good, that suit what we want to do anyway. It really is a question of us doing what we want to do. And then we've come up with a justification that, that claims something else so that it's not saying I do X because that's you know, because it suits my needs. Instead, it's there's some grander purpose to what we're doing. And I think, to me, the fish thing is that. So anyway, I would offer them live fish in, in their water bowl. And generally speaking, they respond really aggressively to that. Again, speaking to what they're programmed to do, um, it's, it's few and far between that you would have a baby rhino that wouldn't take fish or tadpoles from the bowl. Um, then gradually if they, with size, interestingly in, in the wild, they do eat rodents. Those 94, 95 studies in Vietnam found gut contents to show that they, they do eat rodents, uh, with size. So there will come a point where they will willingly transition to, to rodents. It's not necessarily age. It's uh, seemingly size. And presumably that correlates to a size where they could find suitable prey that they could eat. Um, an interesting point while we're there is you will see if you're seeing that your snakes sit in their water bowls, you're probably feeding them too much because they're sort of like people in that, you know, the, when you're in water, you're more buoyant and you feel your own weight less. So if you're, I've seen it, I've seen it myself. Females tend to soak more than males, generally speaking, but I can't tease that apart from the fact that you tend to feed females more. And certainly even in my hatchlings, after they, when they're taking pinks and stuff, uh, they have a tendency for the first day, you know, day and a half, eight, 24 to 36 hours to sit in their water bowl. Presumably they're doing that because to alleviate some of the pressure on their, their belly in terms of the size of the meal that they've eaten. I think it's very tightly tied to that in terms of little stuff that I've seen. And I don't see them soaking my adults. I don't see soaking in the water bowl the way that I used to when I used to feed them a lot more. Wow. So, it, and is that something to say with like not being used to that prey at them too? I mean, fish is probably such a small lean meal in comparison. Right. Yeah. I think that, I think that's probably right. You know, in terms of um, when we think of the, we see it with blackheads and womas and stuff, right. That eat particularly blackheads that eat rodent or eat reptiles in the wild and very few rodents. Um, the amount of the caloric, package right Rel especially relative to size that they're getting from a reptile a goanna is going to be much lower than it is on a lab raised rodent for sure now i mean there's there's another picky eater that you kind of uh you alluded at earlier and that i know that you're into these days um, but when did you first get into or see your first uh candoya um I think the first Candoia that I had was a Viper boa, maybe from Cameron. Um, 
that came in as one of these, you know, they get the tannins in there leaching into their outer skin. So that when they shed out, they look fantastic. And it had come in and it was obviously a red snake. You could look at the, the ventral scales and it was a, a very red snake. Um, so I had gotten that in 2005 or 2006. And then um, I don't even know if it needed to shed before someone threw a bunch of money at me to get it. Um, so it either had one shed with me or did not. Um, because it was, you know, clearly a correct purchase, um, from a commercial standpoint. Um, the next one that I had, I got, uh, from Ryan Burke in 2015, I think. And it was a 2014. So the Solomon Islands were closed to exportation kind of throughout the 70, well, the late seventies through early nineties. And then so we get into interesting questions of Karusha and all these things. Um, but for the most part, there were Karusha going back to Hank Bolt, you know, Stolen World talks about them. I think some of that stuff is more like Fiji. Um, and the the Australis are from the reef islands, as I understand, which are a little bit uh, a ways away. They're tucked down at the end of the Solomon Island chain kind of floating out there. So they're not, uh, the Pulse and I, I think are pretty easy to find. And you talk about Isabel and, and stuff, and that's a, a place where there, you know, civilization exists in a, in a real way. So those, those were always more accessible. Um, Australis, I think are pretty inaccessible. And then the Solomon Islands were closed after sort of after the, may, maybe even including sort of the Hank Bolt time, and then in the early 90s, they had opened up and sent out a lot of snakes, uh, Australis, Paulsoni. Um, and some of those, at least in the context of Paulsoni, were reproduced. And so those were kind of always around. But even in low, you know, if you went back to 2014, there were Paulsoni, there weren't a ton of Paulsoni, uh, but they, they were around. They did exist, they had been produced throughout that time. Australis, really, that wasn't the case. I think, for the most part, uh, Candoia, the gestation period is tends to be pretty long. In my experience, it was about, uh, let's see, about seven months. And I think on most of those things, you kind of think seven, eight months, something like that. And so people would get them, and they wouldn't even maybe look big. And then seven months later, you know, they'd drop babies. Oh, I bred them, and it's, well, maybe it did, but probably it didn't. You know, and maybe they bred in the box on the way over, but you know, th those sorts of things. So I don't know. The point of that would be that there would be, there were not any, I had never seen Solomon Island tree boas available that I was aware of until 2014. Do you remember, he, do you remember, um, I think his name was Jerry Conway. Uh -huh. um, he used to do Candoya. Yeah. I think unfortunately that he passed away recently. Um, really? yeah, that's, that's I my understanding. Everything. Cause I got a, I got a pulse and I probably 2014, whatever the year is when things started coming in. And, uh -huh. um, and so I looked back at all his stuff and he'll, all his stuff, I think was like early mid two thousands, maybe. Right. And so there, obviously they had come in and there must've been some, again, I, I can't speak to the legality and they, so they're similar to 
there are the so these are Candoia bibrini australis. They're bibrini bibrini from Fiji and Fiji and Vanuatu and sort of these other islands that are a different uh, you know it's a different country, possibly different countries um, where that subspecies exists. And those snakes have a slightly different pattern and are generally speaking larger. Um, so whether we really historically have had good insight into, I can easily imagine, particularly in a semi-legal context, going back to Hank's stuff, I'm not sure whether he was bringing a Bibrini Bibrini or Austra Bibrini Australis. Um, so there, it's a bit mixed. And honestly, even based on the information we have now, it's a, I don't know that we have great insight from where we sit to really say, oh, that's one or the other. There are certainly characteristics. And I think I could tell you, but I wouldn't, that's, that's definitely a, a known unknown. There are things that I don't know for sure on that. Um, but uh, anyway, so Jerry did have some of those. I don't know whether he ever produced Australis and if he did, whether they were Australis that had been bred in the wild and then were born at his place. Um, I know Tom Crutchfield had some born at his place. So I, I don't know whether he produced them. The really cool bit about these, these snakes is that they have a crazy ability to change color. So that those two that are right next to each other, that one and the one you highlighted previously, those are the same snake. Wait a second. This black one and this animal. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are the same snake. <laughs> and that was the first one that I got. Uh, that it had come in in 2014 and I got from Ryan Burke. Um, so yeah, for so that one, audio, like this one animal is a light greenish hue with some pink. And then the, the animal that is the same animal is black with some like orangish creamy random spots on it. Like totally different, totally different animal. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they have an, a remarkable ability to change color uh, sort of, I guess, most akin to maybe a gargoyle or a crested gecko <laughs> that you were talking about earlier, you know, in terms of how, how dramatically they can change. And so that's one of the things, you know, an impetus to get things in cages to see, okay, see them change color and really be able to look at them and say, is this the same? Is this different? Because they're another one that uh, to an even more extreme degree, the follicles must get massive before they're ovulated. Um so that people perpetually, and especially on something that then has a seven to eight month gestation, they can hold those follicles really big for maybe four or five or six months. So that you're sitting there thinking, oh, I've got a, you know, gravid one, I'm only months away. And the thing never even ovulated, it's just sitting on really big follicles and you'll ultimately get nothing. That female that you pulled up has done that to me. And how exactly, how'd you go about, I mean, did you buy these How'd you start the project? Did you buy them as babies? So I got a pair that were um, adults. So that the the female that you had pulled up previously, um, I got a pair from Ryan. And then two years later, another shipment had come in from Solomon. Another shipment or two came in from the Solomon Islands. And I got, uh, I got maybe six more or something like that. And they were, I had wound up having mostly females. So then I, another shipment came in in 28, 2018. And I sent, um, I sent some females to Jeff Murray and he traded, you know, 
one for one, which we swapped. I sent him some females and he sent me some extra males so that I had enough males. And then I've subsequently gotten a couple more so that I actually have more males than females. Though that being said, I know Jerry's thing with Kandoi and I, another soapbox that we could could talk about but um i agree with them that it's a good idea to to have multiple males i i I think that probably doesn't hurt but that being said the the babies that i got last year um i just used one male that that wasn't uh it wasn't necessary there but the male that produced well the pair of them that produced were both the largest ones that i've had and even possibly uh, the largest ones that I've seen. So the male came was actually one that Jeff had sent me and is the largest male that I've seen. And the the female had come into Cameron's place and was the largest one of the probably 150 or so total that I've seen him bring in uh, the largest one that's come in. So looking at it, it's one of these things where you can just sort of look at it and say, wow, this is a really impressive old snake. I think this snake's probably 25 or 30 years old when it came in. And that was, going on five years ago. Wow. And I've admittedly, I've only seen these as babies and they're small. So what, what's a big individual, a big adult? Um, They're not that big, uh, which again, maybe is sort of when you see people saying, Oh, well, they're six foot long. I think that's probably confusion with Bibberni Bibberni. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe that female is getting towards four and a half or five feet. And maybe when not gravid, two and a half or three inches across, you know, in diameter at the at the mid body. Um, that one of the pictures that you had just scrolled through was um, did show her when she was gravid, um, and they did. I guess the the one point I would make in terms of people saying, oh, is my snake gravid, is if they are gravid, once you're a few months into it, they take on the typical gravid boa features. So they don't just look like a stuffed sausage. They start showing pyramid, you know, pyramiding off the spine and lateral distension and scale separation and stuff like that. It is funny to me that I did post pictures of that snake sort of throughout the process. And I think maybe because of how people react to things on Facebook, that people don't want to be the person who yeah, so not that one. Um, I think maybe scroll down instead. Yeah, so that one to the left that, yeah, they're hovering over. So that's her very gravid. That's probably two-thirds of the way through. And you can see how the how she's laterally distended and that the prominence of the spine and just the the difference in her body weight between her first third and sort of her middle third. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so humorously, you know, I posted those pictures and people didn't. There was no, oh, is she grabbing or or anything like that. And I think maybe people get worried that people are gonna view them negatively or say, no, no, of course not. You know, people are just too mean to each other on the internet. But um, yeah. At least I'm sure uh, a Candoya group is probably pretty, uh, pretty. I think it's relatively tame, you know. Yeah. There's no twelve-year-olds in there. (laughs) And I mean, if they are, they're you know that's that's the they're a cool-ass twelve-year-old. Yeah, right. You know, as someone who's been into reptiles from that age, I've certainly you know made 
made an ass of myself in the way that any 12 year old is bound to do when they're talking to people that are 10 to 50 years older or whatever, 60 years old or whatever it might be. Robin's um, mom. Yeah. Right. Robin's mom. You know? <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, it's, it's all good. And I think you just have to try and have a good attitude and do the best that you can. Let me, it's getting a little bit dark here. The sun's going down. Uh, let me manipulate the lights and uh, go get a drink and stuff. Yeah. Go for know. it. Okay, yeah. I can cover cool. some time. Right on. Yeah, so guys, it is the, I guess, heat of the egg laying season. And I just had, I had three clutches late in one day. And then I had one, two days later. And now it's been like two or three days without eggs. And it's weird, but when we get around this time, two to three days without eggs is like painstaking. Because there's there's a bunch of females that I know are on the cusp. And I'm also being like, uh do I suck at this? Am I going to get clutches from this female, from that female, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, but yeah, I have Eastern black king snakes that I'm incubating right now. I have ghost clutch. There's a ghost to a coral ghost tessera. I have, now oh, I wish I could remember who laid email buff stuff, buff stuff. Yes. And other than that, I got a bunch of other stuff going on. But uh, Louisiana Pine just went in her pre-lay shed. So that will be fun. Uh, I mean, it's crazy because you're just I, – I work with a bunch of colubrids, and you can see that these females are just filled with eggs. And then you go to the Louisiana Pine, and, like, she is not really that that distended. You can't tell that much. And if anything, I can tell that she has, like, two to three eggs, which is kind of a weird thing. Um I wish I wish she would have more, but that's probably what we're looking at. I would be surprised if we got to five, to be honest. Probably looking at three to four eggs again. Um, last year I got three, two fertile. So if I can get three fertile eggs, I mean, I would be happy with that. But anyway, Rob is back. So yeah, man, Candoya. I mean, how did you how did you go about? I mean, pairing them. Was there any information that you were going off, and even what time to pair them, or what time of the the season to pair them? So the only person that I know uh, had uh, well, the only information that I had in terms of actual precise information, and I can easily imagine. Certainly, I don't. I don't say that people hadn't produced them. It's just that a lot of the information that folks would give out was so vague, and I think that's just a function of a the the distance from when it happened. You know, Tom Crutchfield talking about having litters in the '80s. He's not going to really remember the details and specifics of that. Um, and the other part of it, right, is if they have a seven month gestation by the time, you know, if you are managing a collection that size or an operation that size in terms of stuff going in and out and all this stuff, it's probably pretty unlikely that you're going to really have detailed notes on in terms of all the stuff that was going on. Or you probably gave up on it already. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, okay. Especially on something I do think obviously in the wild in terms of their body form and probably how many of them there are in really condensed space that they, um, they probably only breed every three, two, three, maybe more years, something like that. So that like on the one that produced for me that at a guess is came in at 25 to 30 years old, we're probably talking, maybe she's bred, I don't know, two or three times before something like that. Um, there is one interesting bit since we're sort of on 
it's sort of topical to the to this point would be that uh, generally speaking, people keeping them are probably going to have more of an issue with males than they will with females. I think in the wild that males absent maybe being really, really big males are probably only eating lizards their entire life. So what you can see is they do seasonally fast in terms of a, a reproductive season, getting them to take first meals again. Sometimes it can be an issue and using, utilizing either uh, frozen thought lizard or lizard scent at that point um, can be super helpful. I do, I don't, did I explain the floating pinks thing? I don't know. We might have to put a pin in that. You might have to take a note and come back to it. But um, Oh, shit. Did we only... end up forgetting that? I think. I think so, but <laughs> maybe we'll, so we, we we'll, can go we'll back, bring it we back can around. Remember, yeah, yeah, we'll try and remember to come back to that. But um, anyway, so that's a, that's a side note. I know you were talking to Laura. Is that her name? The mm-hmm. gal you had on a couple weeks ago. Yep. Okay, um, you know, and she had gotten some, and I just know the the advice I give to people would be to say, you know, on immature females and on males, just know that you might when they seasonally go off food, that's normal. But then in terms of restarting them, you might have to utilize some lizard scent, something like that, especially with those males. Cause I think once they don't eat for a while, they kind of stop remembering that, Oh, I could eat these things too. Um, and get them to take rodents. Do they have preference on experience. lizards? I mean, do they well, care? Does gecko skink a null? The easiest thing for me to get, right, is the brown, the invasive brown anoles out of Florida. Um, Ian Vassell had put me on to Eric Chung, who collects them to order, and that that would be the route to go, or at least what I would recommend. But sort of in the same way as talking about uh, we justify the things that we want to do anyway, if you don't live there, then you're FedEx shipping a bunch of lizards that, you know, that's not nothing. And so... To, to view it as well, I could feed this, you know, I can buy pinks from Rodent Pro for 20 cents or something, you know, 20 or 30 cents or whatever. If you get live brown and oils shipped to you, not close to there, that meal costs 10 times that. And you have to manage them and keep them going. And you now you're taking care of a bunch of lizards. <laughs> so I don't know. I think it's one of those things where is it, that you don't want to feed them a lizard or or you don't you're oh there's parasite transfer from lizards or is it you don't want to be giving them something that costs you four dollars <laughs> you know for, yeah. for every week you know so that's um i think we some of that gets lost yeah absolutely so when we're talking about these guys and getting going i mean having wild caught animals i mean they're not even they shouldn't even really be on the same time schedule. I mean, seasonality, how does that even work? Um, right. Did you just acc- acclimatize them right away into our winter? Or? Yeah, I mean, I just sort of, the the room, well, so I am a proponent of, I think there are cycle. Eric and I were talking about this, and I know he was talking about this to Scott, and I think Keith as well on the most recent show. Uh, not that I've heard it, but from talking to to him, that that was something that they talked about is um, I think there's a bunch of variables that we can perceive when you're talking about light cycles, temperature cycles, humidity cycles across the year. Or even one thing that I think we forget sometimes 
is that some of these cycles aren't even annual, but they might be every two or three years, right? Certainly, if you're talking about something like El Nino or La Nina, that some of these cycles and some of these species, we sort of conceive of them as being, oh, well, even if these particular snakes didn't breed, you know, only breed every two or three years, you might have populations of snakes that only, as a population, just don't produce at all in a given year. So then if you're looking at something, sort of we have this expectation that these things produce every year. Oh, my things aren't, my snakes aren't breeding. I'm pairing my, my pair of Moluccan pythons or Homohara pythons. Certainly I've been there, you know, where, oh, and they didn't go. And it's like, well, that given snake may only have produced every two or three or five years or something. And that's in a year where the conditions were right for them to do so. So you might have a year, theoretically, depending depending on the range of species and the variability of uh, situation. He and Eric and I were talking about it in the context of Owen Pelly pythons, where it's, I wouldn't be shocked if there are years where there are no Owen Pelly pythons born based on the seasonal conditions that occur. And then even when conditions are appropriate, maybe you have stuff only every second or third year in a given or or longer time frame in a given snake. So I just think sometimes we lose the the context of that. So um, I try and hit all of the, well, try and hit or just allow within my conditions to happen all of the, the seasonality that does occur in terms of barometric pressure, humidity, temperature, light cycling, um, humidity cycling more generally, just in terms of you know, if the heat's on, the humidity, uh, which is never high in here in the first place, goes down. And there are other times where I'm trying to, you know, kind of spring and fall, trying to hit that as much as I can to accentuate what happens. And to some extent, I, it's not even a, a function of mimicking nature, but rather trying to give a more extreme version of the nature that occurs, right? In terms of light cycling, there take Kalmahara pythons, right? It's basically 12-12 there all year round. Maybe it gets down to 1130, you know, one way, 1230 the other. But they still perceive that, I think. And and so if you switch them then to going eight, you know, have a range of daylight from, you know, 8-16 down to 13-11, they're, you're really hammering that button so that they're perceiving that as, wow, this is the most extreme year I've ever seen, or hitting that impulse, right, on a captive-produced captive animal in the most extreme way they've ever seen, and you're really accentuating something that they perceive. And it's not, oh, well, I'm make, mimicking exactly what they're seeing, but rather I'm really hammering the, trying to hammer the, the response to that. So uh, I try and do all those things, and then I, as someone who watches nature shows and all this stuff and just sort of tries to perceive the world as being i think intrinsically we as humans don't the the reality of things is too too vast for us for most of us to really understand myself included there are definitely things that are happening that i don't have the ability to conceptualize let alone turn into something that i'm actively doing or not doing in my room right so that like and I, th I think it behooves us to view the world that way in terms of saying there are so many complexities and implications and subtleties that, you know, we're doing the best we can. And you just have to kind of view it that way. So that we always talk about, oh, the six variables, you know, you can control. Yeah. And then there's a handful yeah. of others that 
are happening that maybe I'm not even aware of and certainly food cycling. And then even, okay, well, maybe I'm injecting carotenoids and other thing. you know, putting, um, putting lorikeet chow into, you know, injecting that into rodents and all that. I know Eric did that with the home. Have you, stuff. I was about to say, have you done that? Oh yeah. I mean, dust, someone was just talking about on um, one of these podcasts was talking about, and maybe, maybe it was Scott. I don't, I don't remember, but anyway, so Rapashi, right, has, who was, yeah, I think, well, it was Ian talking to, you know, it was the Condracast. Ian was on there, but there were, David Brahms, I think, was talking about dusting, dusting the butts of rodents with stuff. But I think he was talking about just doing like crested gecko diet and that sort of thing. So I haven't done it with crested gecko diet, but I've done it with uh, the super pig stuff. And I did see, you know, boost in those carotenoids does does make a difference in the, the visual output of stuff, you know, doing that with their eye. Um, I have an interest in the reptilink stuff. It's not a new concept. T-Rex used to do that back in the mid 90s. If you pull up a reptiles magazine, you know, there's oh, the links ads and all, all that over. stuff. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I know the, back in the day, uh, corn snake breeders used to do calcium. They used to dust, especially for their breeders, for you know, yeah. egg, egg laying the, and creation per se. The interesting bit of that is, I've actually heard of it going it being too much. So, Orthriophis, the beauty snakes uh, and related species, have a really thick, weird shelled egg anyway. Um, and Toby Brock down in Corpus Christi was doing that was start one year, gave him calcium supplements and he wound up making these eggs. The snakes couldn't hatch out of. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So be a little judicious with some of that stuff, but you know, I'm sure he wouldn't, I, I think that's rat snake foundation form stuff. I don't think I'm talking out of school and I, I don't actually know. I haven't been in touch with him in a while. I don't know if he keeps stuff at this point, but, um, just in terms of they have they do have a very strange sort of segmented egg anyway and then um yeah he, he wound up having issues associated with uh over calcification of eggs when he had supplemented the females um so on something like a corn snake where they have so we're talking about different snakes right in the sense the beauty snake tends to have large eggs and have relatively few large eggs in a single clutch in a year a corn snake that has a ton of small eggs um possibly i mean it's not a public milk snake right where you're getting six clutches in a year theoretically an african house snake it's always funny to me that people talk about producing the heck out of african house snakes i never have had good success breeding them um i think part of it is having albine well so the thing with African house snakes is there are so many sort of hidden species that I think one issue we run into is making sure that you actually have a two pair, a pair of the same thing. Um, so in terms, I think what that, I do think what it comes back to is like people, our experience is limited to our own experience, right? Our own experience of the world. And if you bought a pair of snakes that were, say captive hatch babies from a, a given pair, then well, those will either be the same thing or they're close enough to have made it work, right? Uh, in terms of actually producing something. And then your experience is limited to to breeding those things. And there you have, um, you don't have a lurker species context, right? Where actually you're trying, you're unwittingly trying to make hybrids that look the same. Um, and so you're having fertility problems. So I think I've seen some of that. So if you're gonna do house snakes, I would recommend you get them from the same shipment. Um, 
and the albino thing, albino to albino doesn't work well. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know if that's a product of something associated with the gene, more like an albino spotted python, or if that's, um, you know, something where inbreeding um, depression of some sort. Yeah. If it's inbreeding depression, but I certainly know the the rep on those was always, you wanted to breed a homozygous to a heterozygous animal to when you were producing them to get the best viability. Um, and those are theoretically compensus that are, you know, the same thing. So if you're doing the albino stuff, maybe it makes sense, but just a side note onto everyone says that African house <laughs> snakes are the easiest snakes to breed. And I, yeah, I say, hear that all the time and they consistently yeah. produce. Yeah. I would say, yeah, but you know, and make sure, you know, there are a couple, couple things to, to make sure that you have right, or it's not going to work. Yeah. So who doesn't have eggs? Uh, Candoya, how the hell did we get there? Right. So, yeah, I don't uh, know. You, you didn't know you were going to talk about African house snakes, huh? I bet that yeah, wasn't no. on the, the playlist today. But then again, um, I mean, that's another thing that Rob Stone has capped at one point in his life. Yeah, sure. I, I like them a lot. Man, Aurora house snakes are some of the coolest snakes. Oh, dude, are. those are crazy. Yeah. And then hey, I don't know if you've seen zoo. these green ones, those green ones that have been coming out recently. I don't, I don't forget what the species is called. Oh, yeah. Okay. I'll check them out. I'll, I'll find one for you. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, no, there. Well, and I remember even going back to old TFH books in the same way, man, where it's you just see the species that was say uh, South Africa really tends to be closed, at least since I've been keeping reptiles to export. So there are a ton of South African species that are really cool. Um, oh, shit. There was so there's this German reptile magazine, a, a small sort of half half size magazine called Soria from the mid nineties. And there was, so this was one, excuse me, one from, oh, where was it? I think from uh, Uganda, right? There was some house snake on the cover and it's sort of this purple and blue and gold uh, tri-stripe snake that, I just was asking Matt most if he'd ever seen him come through Outback or anything like that. Cause I've never, I've never seen him here, but that would be a cool snake to keep too. It certainly is a house snake. So, um, you know, if those get, I mean, like the auroras and stuff, are those not around? Is they're a little bit more difficult or are they just less imported? Both. Yeah. Both things yeah. are true. Um, I remember so Denver Zoo had bred the auroras and the babies were a pain in the butt, you know, that wanted lizards and, and were just small. I guess that it prompts uh, something I was thinking earlier when we were talking about, I was saying Alterna and Theri are things that take really well to being assist-fed mouse tails. Um, there are other things like an eastern hognose snake that are the form of their body is not such to to really accommodate that, right? It's four times the, the width of a, a mouse tail, so that's not going to work. Um, and uh, so you need to, you know, that you're going to have to try and get them to take a, scent, a toad-scented pinky because you can't assist them a mouse tail. And those things, based on that width, just have the ability to, Toss it right back up. Anything you put down there. Greenhouse snakes. What's the species? I don't know. See, this was this is saying a hypo, like it's some type of. Uh, yeah, like I mean, that looks like more like a. But there's one that is legit, and I'm trying to look at Kayla because Kayla Bell got some. She imported them from like Europe or some okay. somewhere. Um, I can actually see them in the banner of her. 
of a thing, but it's going to be hard to get. But I'm not sure. I want to say that there are separate species. Um, maybe the is it the olive house snake? That's the that's the common name, or is that okay? Basically the. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, certainly that is a snake that exists. Whether that is that snake, I wouldn't have thought so, but that looks more like, a, as you say, like maybe a mutation, like a fulgonosis or a capensis mutation right. than it is a, um, just in terms of scalation and that, the eye stripe thing. Yes, this, um, this stripe is this Kayla's animal. Um, yeah, that's yeah, they, they have that, that eye stripe. That's Still not cool. as good as the Aurora House snake, though, right? Yeah, man, they're they're just neat little snakes, you know. Um, and something you really don't see at this point. There are definitely people that are producing them, hundred uh, percent. But it's just one of those. It's the classic situation, right, where we say, "Oh, they're you know, no one's working with them." Well, not no one. It's just that we're not exposed to it on the level to it counts as no one unless that person happens to be a buddy of yours or whatever, so that you're aware of what he's doing. So much right. is happening in the world. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I feel like that would, I don't know, that would be a snake that you would keep a good, uh, a smaller colubrid skinny. And it uh, yeah. seems like it would I mean, be your thing with the and Alterna. Yeah, certainly. I mean, well, and then, you know, I know in the pictures I sent you, there are Patias in there and stuff too. And Indigo, I like Indigos. Who, do, who doesn't like a really smart snake? You know, Patias is basically an Indigo, but far more nervous. I know Billy had, uh, Billy Hunt, had, I sent him at female and he had to go and make a whole crazy lockbox and all this. Stuff. I told him, man, I just keep it on some cork bark. But I, I didn't lie. I said, yeah, it's super shy and nervous and all this stuff. And, is right, you know. Um, they're like a super shy indigo, whereas an indigo is just gonna, you know, it's it has the same level of attention, but isn't afraid. Yeah, sometimes intelligence is kind of a negative thing. They're smart enough to know yeah, who who to hate. Yeah, um. well, you know, if it's a if it's a retic as a risk, a potential risk to your safety, you know, or whatever. But um, you know, in Rock terms of also something I know you've kept before. Yeah, man. Well, only only briefly. And the mistake of that was saying like, okay, well, who the heck can I realistically sell this thing to? I just so Cameron had gotten in these baby, you know, within six week old baby croc monitors, and the thing was fascinating and gorgeous, and it, it wasn't that much, you know. It's they're more now than they were at the time, you know. And it was like, man, this thing is so cool. Sure, I'll do it, you know. And the the thing would look at you, and it gave you the, you know. Jurassic Park, you know, you could see something's working in, in the background. The humorous, uh, semi-humorous bit of that was when I was at uh, volunteering at Denver Zoo, one day the male croc monitor was dead in the pool in the exhibit. And so he'd gone in and grabbed it and then brought it to the uh, to do a necropsy up in the vet's office at the zoo. And the thing is splayed out on the table and they go the initial process or whatever is going to be to open its stomach by starting, you know, the sawing through the the pelvis. Right. And I'm standing there and it, it did give just the impressiveness of this animal is such that I'm standing there thinking I'm about to be in, you know, some scene from alien autopsy where they, the second the saw hits the animal, the thing pops up from the table and we're all, you know, we've all bit it. So 
that, <laughs> that was the profound experience of the whole thing. Saying terror that the second the saw hit the thing, it was just going to go berserk. You end up seeing anything cool? No, it, so I think ultimately it was sort of a classic, you know, monitor thing, classic Goanna thing, where it was just stress that you know his intestines were essentially tied into multiple knots, um, and it presumably is a stress reaction to being in there with the female. But he did. There was hey, he was beat up, you know, a little bit or whatever, but nothing that would suggest, you know, he looked fine ostensibly, but his guts you know, we're a mess. And it's like, okay, well, this is a clearly a, a stress response to, to being exposed to her. And I've seen that in other things. I've seen it in Kimberly rocks and stuff. The other, my other favorite monitors, um, the best, uh, you know, working at pro exotic, going back to the pro exotics thing in terms of Priscina Bacara are cool. I kind of have a soft spot for them, but you know, generally speaking, the Australians are super into stuff that they can't have in the same way that we're into stuff that we can't have or whatever. So Priscina, are the the thing and i'm like oh glowered eye are way cooler monitors man. super so much cooler although so, you know, i'm not a monitor guy is, is priscina green trees uh-huh what are yeah. and then what are what's the other one that you said so bakari are the black tree monitors they're from okay. aru they're structurally very similar um that whole complex of things are very closely clearly very closely related, at least in body form. And they're just isolated into different colors and things based on, you know, whether they're Risingeri or the Macrae and the, the blue trees, the yellow, the, you know, the yellow trees, the blue trees, then you get cordensis that, that are more or less green trees, but with a different patterning and things from a different spot from Biak. Um, but uh, I know they're, you know, sort of the cool thing. And I'm like, yeah, they're, I don't know. They're a, in the same way as the dragon rat snake, you know, I, I don't know. It's just not my thing. You know, I, I don't like snakes that look emaciated. I don't like tree <laughs> monitors that, that, you know, just sort of have that look. It's just not my thing. Whereas a glowered eye that has the same body weight just looks fit, you know, as opposed to looking like it's starved, you know. And those animals are typically pretty reclusive and skittish, right? As far as the right. tree monitors go. Yeah, certainly. Most of the tree monitor stuff tends to be, and then um, certainly, you know, my pro exotics bred them uh, successful, unsuccess. Well, got eggs and thing. You know, it was a whole whole working progress from when I was there the first time to actually producing them and stuff. Um, but you know, so they, they are cool. They they are generally speaking more reclusive to me. Kimberleys that are so gregarious i mean i have that picture of the one that's sitting like it's sitting on a recliner you know that, that particular female that i had for years and years and years down to a time when you know every, everyone talks about the import of australian reptiles as though it's a continual thing that's unavailable it's more accurate to say that there are ebbs and flows to it certainly they aren't being exported from australia but in terms of imports from europe there were no bell's lace monitors I, I remember talking to Hank Moult about Bell's lace monitors and um, Owen Pelly pythons and Mitchell's monitors in at Daytona in 2003 and 2004, you know, and it was a pipe dream, even though in Europe there were Bell's laces and stuff like that. And then within five years, there were some legally imported to the U.S. because that sort of, there was a stretch around 2010, 2009, 2010, where 
you know, Australian shipments of Australian reptiles with paperwork from Europe were being cleared. Now we're back into a stretch that's more like 2003, 2004, 2005, where they weren't. So that in 2007, 2008, there were essentially no Glowardi in the U.S. Brandon up at Canadian Coldblood had some, there were certainly a few, but it seemed the sort of odds on number seemed like maybe there were fewer than 10 females in the U.S., you know, in 2007, 2008. So it's good to see that they're now, um, you know, have bounced back and we got some and now people are doing, there are more people seemingly doing really well with them. Um, I know Brandon Shiflett's doing well. Justin Barocas was kind of the one guy who, you know, maintained throughout the whole thing. But um, there's a perfect example to, to the point you know, you were raising about some things are more fun to keep than others based on how they react is that Pilbarensis, which are beautiful, beautiful, right? With oranges and some of them you can get blue and white. You know, I have one that American flag looking little lizard, right? And, but they're always super shy and they'll bite. Like the, the one, excuse me, the one great shot I have of that lizard is it, it's busy biting the, my middle finger. <laughs> You know, you can see, oh, wow, that is this gorgeous lizard. And it's like, why, how'd you get it to hold still? Well, it's biting the crap out of my finger. Um, so, um, I don't know, to me, Mertens and then Glowered on here, the, the bee's knees for sure. The bee's knees, the cat's pajamas, he heard it. So I, we got to loop back around because we just, we went off right there. Uh, <laughs> can't do it. <laughs> So, Gravid Candoya, uh, how many babies did she lay when she laid? Um, so, she had 13 live babies, and there were four that looked like they would have been fine, um, but maybe got smashed either by the, the furniture and things. Um, they, they weren't slugs. They, would, they looked like they were born live, but maybe she had squashed them inadvertently or something like that, or, you know, trapped under the furniture. The other part of it is when you're talking about a seven-month incubate or gestation and not having any cognizance of that, I did sort of, admittedly, she started, again, going back to cages. Uh, cages, and I suppose there's one, one other bit that I do think is interesting or something to consider for people if you have a dedicated reptile room is utilizing red lights as the fixtures in the room. Or if you're a fancy pants who has multiple lighting systems within the room, you could have your day bulbs and then your, your red bulbs that you would utilize at night so that you're actually getting sort of nocturnal behavior and you can actually maintain a photo period, an annual photo period um, that you can't if you just Bob, Bob Applegate it and turn on the lights for two days because you're, you know, off from the firehouse or whatever. You know, clearly it, it works and it doesn't, it can work. But just in terms of my own approach and enjoyment in terms of seeing um, natural behavior out of them, like you can tell by the aperture of the pupils that like, man, these things, they, I can't tell whether they're perceiving some of this light or not, but certainly they're not perceiving it in the same way that they perceive, perceive um you know, the bulb in this room, right? Where like all of a sudden it's supposed to be the middle of the night and all of a sudden the sun is back out, which would have to be weird to their circadian rhythms and things. Again, I, I guess it doesn't matter for a lot of North American colubrids and stuff because it's proven proven not to matter. But um, I don't think it hurts and it certainly makes them much more enjoyable. 
in the in the sense of Australis, here we'll stay on topic for a second, at least with this. That, <laughs> Um, Australis are perceived to be totally tame, and that's generally speaking true. Um, but what I would say is they're totally tame when the lights are on. When you know when when we can see normally, then yeah, they're they're totally na- totally tame. Under a red bulb, um, all of them, especially with certainly, so I feed seasonally as well. But within the feeding season, um, man, uh, sure, I'd give you. 20 bucks, man, if you're going to put your hand in there because you're going <laughs> to, it won't have been worth it. You know, <laughs> like, oh, okay, cool. They're tame. Okay. Feel free, man. Here's 20 bucks. So open it up and pull her out. Let's see how it goes. Um, the females in particular, because they're so much more responsive to rodents, which turns into, which is more of a reflection of body heat than the, the males that are eating lizards that don't really put off body heat in the same way um, or even retain to reflect in the same way. Um, man, they're not tame at uh, the point being, they're not tame at nine, you know, when they're in a feeding mode, they are not tame and it hurts a lot. Um, they have a lot of jaw pressure and those teeth are really strongly recurved. So, uh, it's a good thing that they're so calm when we mostly expose ourselves to them because it's very unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, those Candoya all have a very, uh, particularly shaped head. I guess that comes in handy. Oh yeah. Like they, they grab and hold on and it's, I mean, it's not the worst, but it's, it's not great, man. Um, it's probably like being bit by a roughie, which is probably pretty terrible. So, but I don't know many people who have, and I don't know yeah, if I right? know anyone who has. Um, I somehow, I don't think Owen's pulled it off, at least not with any, with size, which is disappointing. <laughs> disappointing that he didn't get bit or. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah we were bit house, by so everything we else in his collection. So. Yeah, right. I mean, we should actually we should make something out of that. I know the the carpet fest is maybe made online or canceled or whatever, but I still plan on coming out to. We can go in a small group and go go do. Let's some see if I can get bit by a roughie type of. Uh, yeah, fest. maybe maybe I'm thinking that w- one of the events we can have a you know, a uh, fundraiser or something you know, associated <laughs> with, let's see him get lit up by one of them. Yeah. Change his tune. He'll get out of roughies and that'll be it. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose we could, you know, uh, we could go out of our way to help him and I guess take him on board and stuff. Maybe, you know, okay. I guess we can take him, take care of him for him. I mean, that would be, yeah, that would, we would be being good friends, I think. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, at this point we got to take the whole clutch and the eggs and everything too. It's a whole thing. Right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh yeah, babies. Are the, were the were the babies kind of aggressive at all coming out to anything? No. Um so that's that's the other thing too in terms of feeding them. They're not uh generally speaking they didn't respond to movement, uh, move either movement or scent. So it, it was pretty clear to me and so I should say so that the in terms of producing them, the one very detailed records that I had access to was a guy in the UK had bred uh, bred them sort of semi inadvertently. I think he had them paired with a, a pair of them together in the same cage as a pair of Paulsoni, um, and in a big cage, and he wound up producing them in two thousand eight or two thousand nine, and actually it's still visible on the King Snake Candoia form. So speaking of uh, that, so there. There is some 
some information there and I'd certainly read and reread and saw the baby, you know, all sorts of, it certainly detailed and gave me some sense of, well, at least it's possible because here's an example of it happening and not even sort of in a, well, I've tried four pairs and four pairs for four years and eventually got one to go, but rather kind of, Oh, I had a pair and they bred. Um, so, um, that gave some optimism. And then Mark Goyer, who's Nick Button's buddy, uh, so he's up in the Pacific Northwest, produced them two years in a row, I think, at least, certainly at least two years in a row. Um, and But he wound up losing all the babies because he had a heck of a time getting them to eat, not mm. having access to lizard. Um, so I, I think he lost all of them. Last, no, 2018, um, Dan Maliri brought in some Australis and brought in at least one female that was very heavily gravid such that she dropped her babies. I think the first one dropped like the next day. He put it on YouTube. So there's a, a Dan Maliri YouTube video where there's he, Oh, I got these yesterday and now there's, you know, a, a litter of babies or whatever. So um, Jeff Murray and I bought those babies and then I got, um, I think two, three quarters of them, something like I bought three quarters of them and he, he kept a couple, um, both. So we could both just have some experience working with the small ones. And so I, um, I tried a whole host of different things, including assisting tails and trying, uh, assisting lizards and tease feeding all this stuff. Ultimately I had one, uh, one of six that wound up doing well. And I still have now, and that's the there's uh, amongst those pictures, there's one that looks particularly amazing and you can tell it's pretty small. It's sitting on the side of a tub in there. That is that animal um, at about a year old. So I, I learned lessons associated with that. I don't know whether um, issues that I saw were associated with maybe uh, parasite or infection problems in that female, which you can see particularly in live birth uh uh, live birthing species sometimes. Um, but, uh, the other thing I've seen certainly having the ones, the litter that I had this year. Well, and so Jeff had, uh, at least one of them, one of the ones that he had gotten survived as well. And so he sent that one to me. So I have, um, uh, the one that I raised up or the one that survived on my end. Yeah, that's the one. Um, the one that survived on, on his end, um, and then I have some of the, the ones from this clip. So there's the female about two weeks before she's going to give birth in that picture there. And you can see how she looks kind of really lumpy and bad. Uh, yeah. Those are good signs relative to breeding boas. And that weird sort of vitiligo thing cropped up about two or three weeks before uh, she dropped those babies and was bizarre. And she now, she went back to normal. Um she did not shed before dropping the babies. They, uh, they came out and then she didn't feed until she shed and she shed about two weeks after she had had them. So it's like so another went, weird hormonal color change though. Yeah, totally. Um, she went, uh, in total, something like 10 and a half or 11 months without eating while developing oh. 17, uh, viable offspring in her body. So is that pretty average? Because I mean, I think I remember hearing like Pulse and I can have forty or so. Uh, they have. I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I I think I think the guy in the UK it had less, 
uh, more maybe more like eight. I think these, so Australis, from all that I am aware of, are kind of in the middle, right? They're they're sort of uh, middle to low. The can- Candoia carinata tend to have, excuse me, a small number, maybe three to five, uh, two or two to five, somewhere in that range. Um, I think the Australis are probably somewhere in that eight to eight to eighteen sort of range. Um, so seventeen, even though that you know four of them were not were not alive, was uh, when I saw them, which was the next morning. I did I did get some clues as to this, but the point would be that seven months in, and you're kind of it's natural to start questioning yourself and whatever you're um, now knowing, kind of when they might come. I'll, I'll be more. Um, I guess slightly more inclined to to mist and things, which would help help those little babies. But the downside of that, when you're talking about boas, is that you don't want to sometimes stress uh, of misting them or changing the circumstances in a way like that can actually induce them to give to you know induce partuition such that they they do it outside of the time frame they normally would. So. As much as I would say, oh, now I'll you know start spraying on day two oh six. I I don't know that I would because if those were supposed to go to two fifteen in this case, I might actually induce them and wreck the whole thing. So it's you just sort of have to watch and try and manage it the best you can and hope for the best. The to me beyond even the feeding because for the most part, all of the everyone in that litter ultimately took a live brown animal. Um, some of them it took six weeks to get to that point others started right away the difficulty with them is they do have they have very thick skin and they're not kind of regular consistent shedders so it's important to maintain them more so even than the adults on a humid uh, like keeping them on sphagnum moss in a rack that gives them plenty of access to heat um, to make sure that they can shed right i know um, some of the ones that we had gotten from dan because they like they hadn't had a first shed, uh, and based on the time frame I saw in mine, they must not have had the first shed, which happens basically instantly, because they were having it in the box when I got shipped them. So they were opaque, or maybe it stuck just slightly. Something that wouldn't be a big deal at all to a colubrid um, caused real problems to, to these snakes. But that second shed wasn't, at least in this litter that I saw, it didn't happen for like a month or six weeks. So it, it must have been the first shed because it, there's no way it was the second. Um, so if someone gets produces babies, be cautious with that because it'll stick. And then if it sticks, they're pretty much done for, even, even if you can get it off. It seems to really constrict their eyes, um, cause breathing problems. Um, and in the ones I had from Dan, I had a few where the eyes basically popped out of their heads, which was problematic and disconcerting (laughs) just minor minorly yeah so that that was that was a weird bit i didn't see any of that in my baby so that's again where we say well maybe there was some sort of parasitic transfer from the the female into those babies and it you know i don't i'm not sure whether all the ones that jeff and i got were from a single litter or if they were from a mixture of two uh because i think dan did have two litter two different litters um so i'm not 100 percent on that and maybe that that was an issue that we were seeing there but yeah that that was uh weird and disconcerting and grody um 
So yeah, and obviously those didn't. That was a precursor to them not surviving. Uh, but I would say that it's in, there's some level of possibility that that's just from literally having been opaque and failing to shed on the day that they you know would naturally have done so because they were being shipped, and that was literally enough to do it. So that they are sensitive in that way. They're very sensitive. So are these animals that you waited for that first shed to, to offer um, to offer food? So they shed immediately, more or less immediately on birth. And that's where you get into the question of, well, if it was, if the greater access to humidity, you know, maybe that was something that caused problems in those four that were seemingly fine. Um, again, I, I just don't have the information to speak to that. Um, but they shed on birth and then, yeah, I, I fed them, offered them food right away. And the earliest ones took live, small, live brown anoles within the first week or so. And then others, um, you know, I think the longest holdouts were maybe two months or so, but it is worth pointing out, you know, or I, I do highlight that ultimately all of them took live brown and oils, and that was all that I did. I didn't try anything else. Uh, what you can do with those is it does tend to help uh, if you put more than one lizard in at the same time because the lizards kind of provoke activity in one another, which can help. Um Whereas if you have a single lizard, it can just sort of be hanging out and not really doing anything and that's not really attracting the attention of the snake. Um, but uh, yeah, so other than that, I didn't do anything else because of my experience with the the captive hatch stuff from Dan kind of steered me away from potentially assist feeding or anything like that. They're uh, seemingly not that fragile, but again, it is just sort of like the one that, you know, did really well was one that had just taken live brown and oils and I didn't mess with them. And, and now it beats pinkies fine and stuff. It eventually had transitioned just with, just with a, a standard sort of light scent and no problem at all. Um, How long did it take all together to get everyone on rodents? Uh, well, so they're not all on rodents. <laughs> Yeah, from August or whatever, I, I still have a handful that eat lizards. You know, is uh, that something that you're willing to stick out? You know, for I mean, shit. Yeah, I mean, fortunately, you know, right? It. I think at some point I will try and get them to eat something else, but it's it would be a little bit different if they were the only things I had. So I was having to do the whole lizard thing solely because of them, but that's not the case. So. You know, presumably when you get to the point where there's only this one or two things, your motivation changes than when you have a half dozen things across a, a variety of stuff that, that want lizards, you know, and even speaking to the adult males, you know, the import males and stuff. I have a couple now that I had these large anoles that had been too big for any for me to feed to anything. And so they'd been around for six or seven months or whatever. And then I had male Australis that had been on fast associated with breeding and then had uh hadn't been taking back to mice and, and i tell you what man they ate those nice. you know so but then i was full flat you know fully out and i called eric and you know or messaged eric and said yeah i could use something like now and you could even give me some big ones <laughs> and now what are your future what are your future plans um, with uh, with these animals? Um, 
I don't know. I mean, so I paired up um, all. So I had tried four females last year and one, the one went, which was, again, speaking to the cage thing, very good because it was, I was able to look at it, their behavior and say, okay, I don't know necessarily what's working or not working, but I have three females that were paired up that are doing one thing. And that's very closely aligned to what they normally do in terms of uh, hidden away during the day and then hunting at night. And I have one that's clearly on the opposite schedule and is doing something different to what it normally does. And what it's, you know, what the ones right next door to it are doing. And I, we had sort of hit on this a little bit earlier, but it's the point of the advantage of having more than just a single pair, you know, and it, it's, well, and this was a, yes, a, a skipped over soapbox, but um, the, the advantage to more than one pair, right, is that you can then have a situation like I had there and you can look and say, okay, even though this is, ostensibly going to take seven months to figure out whether what I'm thinking I'm seeing is what I'm seeing, I can still on a daily basis, just look and say, well, I think something's going on because it's not doing the same thing as the ones right next to it. Um, what I was going to say in terms of previously alluded to soapbox is that um, I think we're in this kind of is a chondro thing or we get it from the chondros more so than maybe corn snakes so although with the corn snake context some of it's going to depend on the genetics that are involved but i think it's sort of a captive fiction this notion that you know oh well i have this pedigree or you know lineage or pedigree of snakes that oh this pair produced this baby and they you know its parents were this particular pair even if there's not really in the genetic context obviously there's some there's some value to that, but if we were talking about perpetually doing the multiple males that were being introduced are all siblings so that it doesn't actually make a difference, that's much more akin to what happens in the wild. I mean, we're talking about Australis here, right, that are a communal, a communal species, that there's obviously, <laughs> there must be a crazy population density, or at least have been um, historically, so that thousands of them could come from this tiny area. Uh, you know, they could literally go and just fill crates full of them. Uh, they must be in constant exposure to one another. There's almost no chance that a given female is only being bred by a single male. They're almost not, right? Particularly in a species that doesn't appear to actively combat. You know, presumably that's just a reflection of the population of this species, that the diversity of genes is is fine relative to the conditions in which they live. So, um I think generally speaking, it's our own fixation on saying, I want to be able to say that the pair that produced this particular snake was this male and this female, and that that's a reflection of our own ideas more than it is a recreation of natural circumstance where you see garter snakes or diamond pythons where there's a single female and there's 20 males that are riding around, you know, and they're all trying to get their shot. And certainly we've seen with ball pythons better than anything else, the, the fact that you can have multiple paternity and that you know, two of the babies might be from this male and two are from this male and two are from another male. If they were just wild phenotype, then you wouldn't be able to tell. But when they're incomplete dominant traits and it's like, okay, well, this was obviously sired by three different males because we have, that's the only explanation for what we're seeing here. I think that's much, um, that would probably help our success. You know, I think when we're talking about breeding rare species, that's probably, the fact we want to be able to say it was this pair of snakes probably means we don't have any snakes about which to say that. That's a good point. 
and also i think i mean for for the green tree guys and stuff like that it's a lot of marketing and calling them yeah, pretty I'm, names it, the thing is man i'm as down on having this cool chart as anybody you know or thinking that that's cool you know i i do think that's cool it doesn't drive the condros that i've kept you know because the exposure to bushmaster it's like okay well either i'm a, i'm tend to fancy locality snakes so there there would be that but even then like the stuff that uh, Vladimir was doing in terms of the, you know, multi-generation locality cross. I had that stuff, man. I like that stuff a lot. Arubiac times Maroke, you know, F2 Arubiac stuff. Yeah. Because you're getting the, you know, uh, the advantages of connecting genes that haven't been connected in a while that are legitimately, you're talking about different species, obviously, you know, mm -hmm. they are hybrids and you're getting, sort of these hybrid phenotypes that are fantastic they're awesome snakes you know personally i was always part partial to white scales on chondros because uh it's the one color that doesn't tend to change if a scale turns white it will stay white so you could you could at least know you were okay okay keep track of what's going on here and okay every white scale that's plus one for the white scale count you know um when so i was that, that was I was surprised when I was kind of looking into uh, chondros, at least back in the day, I'm talking at least in the nineties or so when they were, when they were importing them, I didn't realize that people were getting a ruse because they were so green and they tended to have more white scales where today people are like, fuck that. I don't want a green snake with a little bit right. of white on it. And no one's into that anymore, but that was like a, a prized animal. Oh, totally. And I mean, even when we had Cameron on MPR, you know, it sort of was a, a reminder that the initial chondros that were coming sort of in the early 90s, at least that he was getting were Marokis. And then there were no Marokis. So that, you know, a decade and a half later, I'm standing there going, oh, man, I've never seen you have a Maroki. And that's all they, you know, used to be just these southern form snakes. And, you know, um, the other cool thing about the white scale stuff is that the scales themselves tend to have a different shape. The ones that turn white tend to be shaped kind of differently. They're extra large and stuff like that. So you could get some predictiveness to it more so than other colors. Um, so, yeah, so I really like those too. They're cool, but um, you know, saying you can't do everything. And um, the point of that was just to be that I, I'm as impressed by anyone as when you say, oh, this goes back, this snake has its ancestors go back to the first reproduction of the species, right? You know, the, the Switex stuff or, or what Steinhardt Aquarium, whatever, you know, that, that I find that as impressive as anyone, but that's not necessarily uh, the way to maximize what you're, what you're going to actually produce. I think it's I think it's fun, especially when you get to a certain point and you have some animals in your collection that may be a little bit older and uh, you go back on lineage and you may see that, oh, like I didn't know that my friend actually had this same exact animal as I did or this guy, you know, a certain individual, yeah. you know, produce this animal. I think it's just it's cool to know, too. I mean, and it's cool to tell other keepers that and that gets other people interested. Um, and it has zero bearing on the actual animal. It has nothing to do with the right. actual animal. And then even then, maybe it does, maybe there's some look that, you know, oh, the, I guess the, the true point of this is mostly to the times where we just go back, especially with the Condor stuff, where it's just silly names and there aren't pictures, you know, and I, again, I'm just as 
you know, I can come up with a nickname, you know, for a given, you know. Oh, okay. Well, that, you know, that looks like a rind of Gouda cheese, you know, but I'm not going <laughs> to say Gouda. So I'm going to say how to, you know, or whatever. Like, okay. Yeah. I had how to, and I sold that to it's the mail that um, Andre Modine gets the, you know, I sent him a, a black and white Gondro, you know, green with black and white and blue Gondro or whatever. And he's made all this cool stuff and that's great, you know, and that was a Highland outcross stuff out of the farm. So that was always more my speed with that, but I, I love, I love the concept, but in terms of producing snakes, you know, if you have two four gene combo corn snakes that you're trying to make, you know, or whatever, and it's like you run multiple males, you'll probably get better fertility. You know? You mean pairing multiple males to the one female? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I've, well, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it's nature's way of making sure there's, genetic diversity i mean because colubrids as far as the males go they are always cruising i mean yeah. ask any grouper out there in the spring males are always cruising and the fact that two males may find the same female is probably not not far-fetched like kind of what you were alluding to before yeah i mean and again so i understand not doing it and certainly it would be a bad idea if you were you know, making palmettos or something you know and you didn't have two males that where that was suitable or where you could uh, get the same result, right? But um, in instances that you do, it's it's probably well. I guess in the same way, it's it's just what is more desirable, right? Is it is it more important to have something that you can identify the full lineage for, or is it to make those offspring? You know, there's there's something... too many recessive genes to do that in corn snakes. You got yeah. you got to breed what right. you know. Yeah, unless you're just you know, I know the leopard gecko thing is the is the same way. I think the corn snakes aren't aren't there yet, but Dude, we're they like you know they're worried everything to make sure what's actually in it and stuff. I'm like, yes. all right, man, this is taking out the fun of it. Let's just give let's give some people some hats to play with here. Totally. But so I mean, yeah, you know, you guys haven't gotten there yet, and that's at least partially because you can still uh, incorporate things that are not you know not tied to that at all in the in a way that the leopard gecko stuff can't, you know, the, the wild type subspecies and things have done that. Really extent, easy to but, get them out of Afghanistan. Yeah. Seems yeah, real. Right. Somehow it just isn't as easy as saying like, Hey, Justin, you know, or, you know, it seems, um, you know, it seems more like Jake, you know, Hey Jake, you're going to work and you found a beautiful corn snake. Can you send it to me? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know? like you can find one in the wild in South Carolina that looks just about as good as anyone in anyone's collection yeah totally i mean so that's just not something that's that's successful with the leopard gecko stuff otherwise they wouldn't have the the issues that they really do it it would still take you know it's also the difference between having something that'll lay 15 or 15 to 30 eggs than two eggs you know four times in a year or five times in a year or whatever but Mm -hmm. um you know not bad stuff yeah yeah but uh let me see. What else you got? You got anything pairing up uh, this spring? I guess it's pretty late for you uh, for Python guys. If you, I don't know if you got Python projects or anything. I have some Timors and some, well, lesser Sundus pythons and Epidora, um, but none of that is adult staff. I don't know. I try and at this point, I'm not it sounds both bad and good. I'm not interested really in selling people snakes, certainly in selling them on a given snake. Um, 
So I, I mostly don't, you know, it, it reaches a point in terms of rhinos and stuff where people badger me and badger me and convince me that they're really into the species. And then I'm happy to help them out, but I don't want to convince them. I'm Are you worthy of Rob Stone's rhinos? Well, it's not even that. Yeah. It's, it's like, especially nowadays, man. So they, you do get tweener stuff where, so the females as babies, they're, they're small to pro, you know, once they're about a year old, then they're not so bad. Um, but the issue you can run into is that, you know, females typically will go two to four and then males will swallow the probe, but you'll get them these ones that are on six or seven. And it's like, well, what the heck's that? Uh, add in the fact that they, along with the porphyraceous stuff, appear to be, they have a genetic sex, but it appears to be overridden by temperature. Um, or at least that's sort of, we have mountains of circumstantial evidence to that point. And well, what is a tweener? I don't really, I don't know. So having some ability, and I know you and I talked about this on the Carpet Fest trip, um, you know, having some visibility into genetic sexing on those in combination with then growing them up for a year or so and then being able to see what they really feel like and look like all helps. But that means that, you know, there's a long period of time where, sure, I have stuff that you know, eventually we'll go someplace else, but it's just not there yet. And a lot of people aren't patient enough to wait what might be six months to a year or whatever, you know. But you wouldn't, so you don't sell babies on sexes like younger animals? Generally speaking, no, because usually I probably want to keep some myself, <laughs> you know. So like I, 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 Maybe that's an area where I should be less of a completist myself and just say, okay, well, it kind of, it is what it is or whatever, but, um, if you got the resources now, to I, do it, why not? And then it helps you in your further projects. I mean, and furthering that project. And I just like, them. yeah, <laughs> you know, like, okay, they're, they're okay. But yeah, eventually some will go someplace else, you know, from, from last year, but usually that means, at the earliest sort of this time for last year's stuff to that point i i am and i tried to get my australia pictures together for eh, for this but I, I couldn't quite pull it off but i am going to redo the site because i've grown weary of um trolls on iNaturalist particularly with monitor stuff so i'm gonna make my own well, and i have a website now but it's um you do web design and stuff right we can talk about yeah. this a little bit Okay. So you remember, so my initial website going back to like 2002, 2003 was strictly code stuff, right? Which is a pain in the butt. Um, then I remember when Dreamweaver came out in like 05 and that was like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever, right? You know, you could actually sort of get some visual expression on this, but you could also tweak it in the code so that if you're a perfectionist and you're sitting there looking like, that is not perfectly straight. I need to go into the code to actually make sure that it's straight. Um, and then Mac had a sort of uh, pre preloaded uh, website builder software that was maybe what the 2012, 2011, 20, 2010, 2011, something like that. But then they stopped supporting it. And so that's what my website is on now. Mm. And it's just how you got to pull out the old computer. It's just a pain in the butt. 
Yeah, I, I tried to use that maybe like four or five years ago because I have I have the Adobe Suite. I don't remember what the hell it was called, but yeah, it's a lot easier now. Like like just a few years after that came out, like Squarespace, yeah. and Shopify, right. and all those started to come out. So it's just completely obsolete. Even even WordPress was a bit easier for for a time. That's what my first uh, my first website was on. Yeah. So so I did. It was like. Um, I researched a little bit and obviously Wix and Squarespace get all the pub on the podcasts and things. So I, I did try Squarespace and I was like, okay, I think I can make this work. So I, I did start messing around with one. It's going to be very picture heavy just as a, a context in which, okay, I can put up the pictures that I, I want to put up. And I know I do feel a little bit bad. I am working on an article for the Herpticulture magazine about rhinos and stuff, but after all this time to not have, Oh, well, my website, speaks about them you know at great length or whatever so i will try and incorporate some of that but i think you know heavy pictures that's that's what people want nowadays right you know that always make it easy easy button with cool pictures yeah yeah that that works for the old attention span So. so we have uh we've gone well over time i i was trying to keep these podcasts to an hour by the way for the last couple weeks this one's been two hours and 40 minutes so I did really well, uh, but uh, so if anyone wants to check out uh, what you we got We didn't even talk on. about Australia. Owen Polly Pythons, Water Pythons, Darwin Carpets. You guys have Eric and Owen and Ow. obviously See, you and Keith. One, one funny thing I will say, what you know, Justin Julander, he and I, so Justin's going to, if we can leave the country come the fall, Justin is going to join Eric and myself. Um, going to wa the the march trip that was postponed to october hopefully it hopefully it happens um but uh i mean don't let eric hear that he's just getting by on the hope that it you know the thought that it will happen so that's that's what's keeping him putting his feet on the ground in the morning but um (laughs) you know i i like to plan the trips i will say so that it's a it's a misstatement, right? Or it's a misinterpretation we have that, oh, you just turn up in Australia and there's randomly reptiles everywhere. Well, if you count little Carlia skinks and stuff, then maybe, yeah, sort of, uh, especially in the right habitat. But it's not like there are pythons everywhere. Um, and so you need to, to really put put in the work, put in the research to do this stuff. So I know Eric's been on all these podcasts and you know, Owen's been on all these podcasts and there's all this vagueness to, oh, where did we go? What did we do? You know, oh, where was that that we went? As the person who makes the intensive itinerary, I can tell you that like having made that beforehand allows you to map what ha- what actually happened to the the plan so that it sort of drives me bananas when they're like, oh, where were we? And I'm like, dude, we were. Uh, this is very highly there was a whole plan that you picked out. Yeah, it's like, you know, we didn't stumble there. We were there for a reason, you know, it's, it's all in love. But but yes, yeah, so the, the notion that the ground has all been covered. I, the, the show we did when we came back with Keith, definitely we got into some of that stuff, more of the details and stuff. But it, it's just funny because it's like, what are you talking about, man? That's not what happened at all. <laughs> I certainly didn't tell some cop outside of Darwin you know, outside Adelaide River that we were looking for reptiles. I would have pretty much done anything before I would do that. That is your own imagination of what you would have said were you the one talking. 
So what did Rob Stone say? I just said I got out of the way because I could tell you guys wanted to go fast. That's what I said to the cop, and they said, eh, fair enough, you know? Sounds good. Y'all good? We're good. Just got out of the way for you. I was in I unusual certainly didn't say we're looking for reptiles. Are you insane? <laughs> I'm guessing, I mean, it's illegal to even touch technically a reptile there, right? Right. Even though you see some... every single Australian do it, and most of them have been venomous. But Yeah, I mean, it's, there, clearly there's some sort of wildlife rehabilitator or exemption. You know, there's some licensing process, and presumably that differs by state and all this sort of stuff that, you know, maybe you can move it off the road. But, yeah, it is the bummer of Australia is like, man, uh, both of the live scrubbies we saw the first trip were preceded um you know either very shortly or in the latter case by like an hour or so by seeing one that was hit just beforehand and that and that'll put you in a dark place <laughs> there's there's no doubt about that you know yeah because that sucks because here we see roadkill all the time and you're like whatever this is a common animal it's even a squirrel it, yeah even if it's like, like Somewhat common animal in Australia, it's still not cool, you know, to go halfway across the world and see it. Yeah, especially when it's like, man, that was, uh, we were on, you know, going down Tully Gorge and it's like, okay, well, the person who worked at the power plant who came the other direction definitely destroyed that scrub python because no one else has been on this road all night long. We've been here for three hours. Hmm. <laughs> Like that was you because there was no one else, you know, came up the other way and whatever. And it's like, yeah, it speaks to their resiliency and the fact that, you know, that they still do great, but it doesn't mean I have to, assets of have Australia to like it. Yeah, totally. So I mean, for, for as many roads as there are going through places, there's luckily a lot of, especially in central Australia. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the weird bit, right, is that, like, around Cairns, so in far north Queensland and stuff, and obviously on the east coast and the southern, you know, southeast coast and whatever, there's a ton of roads. The weird bit about Darwin, uh, the northern territory, is that there's not um, not nearly as many sort of small roads, which is good for wildlife, but in terms of actually seeing them road cruising and stuff, it's not it's much more difficult and it looks like WA is maybe a mixture of the two. There's some spots that there's definitely spots, you know, down East of Perth where there are plenty of roads and stuff. But um, when you get further North, it seems there it's more like Darwin. There's fewer and further between, which is again, good for the snakes, but bad for maybe finding the snakes. What would you be looking for uh, if you get to go to Western Australia this year? Well, uh, certainly Eric would love to find a Southwest carpet and, you know, I'm happy to see any python in the wild. It's, it's a crazy thrill. Uh, Stimmies, Womas, there's, there's some spots, you know, Womas used to be all over that area. They're far more rare than they used to be, but there are some that are being found up further North, um, within kind of the range of the trip that we're going to do. So it's really, it's always fun to do travel and, to Australia's great, get a toasty, you know, and a flat white or, you know, a, um, an ice break, you know, I, I know that's Eric's, it's basically chalk, caffeinated chocolate milk, but uh, it's pretty good, man. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know that that's a trip that is on top of pretty much 
every herpers list, especially people who are probably tuning into this episode, probably because they are into, you know, Indo Australian Python. I feel like our crowd is that way anyway, um, usually. Yeah. But um, so we, I was trying to close this out. I, I know. I'll, I'll let you do it. I'm sorry. I mean, no, no, you're good. So where, where can people reach out? It's like, yeah, I don't even think we got to where people can reach out to you. Okay. Um, I suppose High Plains Herp on Instagram is kind of an easy way. Or you can way. tell everyone to fuck off and not reach out to you if you want to. No, I mean, that's all right. You can follow the Instagram thing. That's cool. Um, I am working on the Squarespace version of the website, so it doesn't link to it at this point, but I'm going to try and put that together. And at that point, then it'll be all the all the things will go to it, whether it's uh, highplainsherp.com, uh, rhinorats.com, spelled either either way, um, that sort of stuff. So eventually all those will go there and hopefully it should be a lot of cool pictures that people enjoy. As for me, Port City Pet, portcitypythons.com. Check out, we have some isopods available, some snakes coming up, um, some other stuff going on. So keep an eye out. Rob, thanks for coming on with me. And of course, I said that right as you drank your beer, which is an inconvenient time. Yeah, no worries, man. I appreciate (laughs) it. It was fun. The video is a bit disconcerting and weird, but uh, it wasn't bad. I appreciate it, and hopefully something was interesting. You got through it. Yeah, man. And right I appreciate on. it. It was it was worth the wait, and uh, we'll have to do. I don't know. One day we'll we'll, we'll do something in person, or uh, yeah, we need to do like a mega so. podcast with the with the NPR folks. Right, we can do it in Eric's cool room or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, you have to come over and check out the collection when you guys are here, because I haven't had people over here yet, really. Uh, Matt was nice. over, but Eric and Owen haven't been here. So. Oh, my goodness. What are they doing? Yeah, we'll do it, man. It's it's my fault. I haven't invited them. <laughs> it's my fault. <laughs> I'm not worthy yet. I need, to, oh I, need to, I need to fix some shit up, you know? I need to make okay. everything pretty. Right but, on, man. Right on. Uh, Thank you guys so much for listening and I will catch you guys next week. I like just...